Welcome back. It's Chase and Josh, the Factor Fantasy. That's Chase. I'm Josh. We're here to give you episode number three in our Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows series that we're finishing out uh, this actual entire arc with. So uh, last week we uh, tackled chapters 6 through 11. This week we'll be going through chapters 12 through 17. And it's funny because when Chase and I were talking about this, all of it was how much of it is going to be reading, kind of. So hope you guys really enjoy story time with Chase and Josh because that's what it's going to be a lot in this book, but it's mainly because everything comes together in this book. All the stuff that were foreshadows from the beginning, it's a part of the series from the other books all the way up to here, the full circle moments that come around from, you know, even just as much as from one book to the next or even one chapter to the next. Like, there's just so much that comes around full circle that it needs to be explained on top of some really cool stuff that happens that, you know, if we just kind of bullet it out, it would take away from like some of the climaxes that happen in this novel. So, we want to make sure that it's an entertaining and everything that we do kind of gives it uh, its proper uh, wow factor. So with that being said here, guys, as you see with my visuals, if you're on YouTube, if you don't, it's nothing's changed. You know, Mad-Eye was the last to go. It's just the novel, part one of the film, and Harry here with me on my end, ready to rock and roll through this, uh, like I said, part three here. Uh, Chase has got a couple stuff on his end, so I'll go ahead and turn it over to him tell you some of the things he's added for the chapters that we have coming up today and then we're going to dive right into it because we got a lot to get to folks yeah um uh not much is different on mine it's all pretty much the same except for there is one significant person that's on the top next to voldemort here and you remember her from year five when we covered my favorite book so uh she's back the lady that looks like a toad and I'll just leave it at that. If you're seeing it on YouTube, you can see exactly who I'm talking about. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, man, we got some awesome stuff for you today. This is really when the journey begins to track down these Horcruxes. Um, so the action starts now, I would say. And, um, you know, we are on the final ride. We're giving everything we got. You've been on this train since October. And in the words of Daenerys Targaryen, Let's begin. Awesome. So before we begin, I'd like to give a little recap of stuff we covered over the the last week of part two, where we went over chapters six through 11. So just kind of a quick read through all there. You know, our gang ends up leaving the wedding, going to Tottenham Court Road. They have that little brush up with the Death Eaters that were able to follow them. We don't know how the Death Eaters found them. Uh, we won't find out in this episode either, but that's coming. That's a full circle moment that we'll get to eventually in these chapters in the future. Uh, from there, uh, they end up going to Grimwald Place. At Grimwald Place, we had a little bit of a revelation of exactly what happened to have the real locket replaced with the fake locket. Creature gave us the story about Regulus and uh, how that came about. We find out that R.A.B. is, in fact, Regulus. And then uh, Professor Lupin, he shows up, tries to get on the train with the trio. They want to go ahead and uh, he wants to go tour the country with them and find some of them horcruxes. He doesn't even know about them. He's like, you don't got to tell me what we're doing, but just let me tag along. And Harry's like, but dude, you got a kid on the way. Don't be a piece of shit. And so basically they got in a big blowout fight and uh, Lupin storms off and leaves them. And then Creature returns with Mundungus Fletcher, who was the last one to take the locket from Grimwald Place. And, Cre and Dungus actually tells us, thanks to Creature who brought him in, 
that he gave it away to a certain ministry official who was shown in the Daily Prophet, who was shown on Chase's screen. And I'm not going to say her name because we're going to get there here in a second, but that's kind of where we leave off with learning who was the last in possession of the actual Horcrux locket. With that being said, let's kind of open up here to chapter 12. I'll go ahead and give like three bullet points and I'll turn it over to Chase to kind of take us through the chapter and we'll alternate uh, similarly throughout. That's how we're going to do it this time around. Again, we're tackling chapters 12 through 17. So that's a good uh, good amount of chapters there too. So, and that being said, starting on page 223, uh, I, I bubbled out here in the, in the little bullet that the muggles think the numbering of the houses was an amusing mistake. So I just think that's interesting because of you guys, we all know about the Fidelius charm and why Grimmauld Place can't be seen. And wizard houses can't be seen by muggles anyways. But on top of that, like if you're a muggle, you're just like walking up and you see 11 next to 13. I could see how that'd be kind of cool. But there's a little wrinkle to this part here is there are people in funny cloaks that are monitoring the space in between house number 11 and house number 13. And that's a little foreshadow because, you know, as Harry arrives, we learn that it's Death Eaters that are out there uh, monitoring that little that little section because they know where in the proximity it is, but because of the Fidelis charm, and for whatever reason, either it's Mad-Eye's curse or Snape hasn't told them yet or can't tell them, they don't know the exact location of number 12, Grimmauld Place. And then, uh, yeah, so usually uh, when it first started here on page 225, it said it would be one or two Death Eaters at a time. But on September 1st, there were six Death Eaters stationed there. You find that on page 224. And the reason I detailed that and bolded that out is because September 1st is the back-to-school day for Hogwarts. So they thought the Death Eaters thought if there was going to be a day that they would leave, that it would be mm -hmm. September 1st. And they, that's why they bolstered their security, put six Death Eaters there instead of just one or two. But it didn't matter. They aren't going back to school. And then the last thing I'll have before I turn it over to Chase to take us through the rest of the chapter is just uh, this one part in page 225. I thought it was really cool to kind of detail the change in character from Creature the House Elf. So it says the kitchen was almost unrecognizable. Every surface now shone. Copper pots and pans had been burnished to a rosy glow. The wooden tabletop gleamed. The goblets and plates already laid for dinner glinted in the light from a merrily blazing fire on which a cauldron was simmering. Nothing in the room, however, was more dramatically different than the house elf who now came hurrying towards Harry, dressed in a snowy white towel, his ear hair as clean and fluffy as cotton wool, Regulus's locket bouncing on his thin chest. So I just thought that was a really cool little piece to read there because it details, you know, Creature, in the other books that we got to see you know, as early as uh, Order of the Phoenix and as recently as Half-Blood Prince, every time you see a creature, he's kind of been like grouchy and like is okay with being dirty and slimy and unkept because he hates everything. So this is interesting how he's got this big turnaround ever since Harry gave him Regulus's fake locket. With that being said, I'll go ahead and turn it over to Chase here on, on uh, page 225 where we learn who the new Hogwarts headmaster is and he'll take us through the end of the chapter. Let's take it. So right where you left off, actually, we're going to be kicking into some big detail here, especially with the guy that's not looked at um, as so great by our heroes right now. Uh, so I'll start right where you picked off. Shoes off, if you please, Master Harry, and hands washed before dinner, croaked creature, seizing the invisibility cloak and slouching off to hang it 
on a hook on the wall beside a number of old-fashioned robes that had been freshly, freshly laundered. What's happened? Ron asked apprehensively. He and Hermione had been poring over a sheaf of scribbled notes and hand-drawn maps that littered the end of the long kitchen table, but now they watched Harry as he strode toward them and threw down the newspaper on top of their scattered parchment. A large picture of familiar hook-nosed, black-haired man stared up at them, all beneath a headline that read, Severus Snape, confirmed as Hogwarts headmaster. No! said Ron and Hermione loudly. Hermione was quickest. She snatched up the newspaper and began to read the accompanying story out loud. Severus Snape, long-standing potions master at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, was today appointed headmaster in the most important of several staffing changes at the ancient school. Following the resignation of the previous Muggle Studies teacher, Electo Caro, will take over the post while her brother, Amicus, fills the position of Defense Against the Dark Arts professor. I welcome the opportunity to uphold our finest wizarding traditions and values. Like committing murder and cutting off people's ears, I suppose. Snape, headmaster? Snape, in Dumbledore's study? Merlin's pants, she shrieked, making both Harry and Ron jump. She leapt from the table, hurtled from the room, shouting as she went, I'll be back in a minute. Merlin's pants, repeated Ron, looking amused. She must be upset. He pulled the newspaper toward him and pursued the article about Snape. The other teachers won't stand for this. McGonagall and Flitwick and Sprout all knew the truth. They know how Dumbledore died. They won't accept Snape as headmaster, and who are these Caros? Death Eaters, said Harry. There are pictures of them inside. They were at the top of the tower when Snape killed Dumbledore. So it's all friends together, and... Harry went on bitterly, drawing up a chair. I can't see that the other teachers have any choice but to stay. If the Ministry and Voldemort are behind it, Snape, it'll be a choice between staying and teaching, or a, ne a nice few years in Azkaban, and that's if they're lucky. I reckon they'll stay to try and protect the students. Creature came bustling to the table with a large tureen in his hands and ladled out soup into pristine bowls, whistling between his teeth as he did so. Thanks, creature, said Harry, flipping over the prophet so as not to have to look at Snape's face. Well, at least we know exactly where Snape is now. He began to spoon soup into his mouth. The quality of creature's cooking had improved dramatically ever since he had been given Regulus's locket. Today's French onion was as good as Harry had ever tasted. There are still a load of Death Eaters watching the house, he told Ron as he ate. More than usual. It's like they're hoping we'll march out carrying our school trunks and head off the, for the Hogwarts Express. Ron glanced at, he, at his watch. I've been thinking about it all day. It left nearly six hours ago. Weird not being on it, isn't it? In his mind's eye, Harry seemed to see, see the scarlet steam engine as he and Ron had once followed it by air, shimmering between the fields and hills and rippling scarlet caterpillar. He was sure Jenny, Neville, and Luna were sitting together at this moment, perhaps wondering where he, Ron, and Hermione were, or debating how best to undermine Snape's new regime. They nearly saw me coming back in just now, Harry said. I landed badly on the top step and the cloak slipped. I do that every time. Oh, here she is, Ron added, craning around in his seat to watch Hermione re-entering the kitchen. And what in the name of Merlin's most baggy wife fronts was that about? I remember this, Hermione panted. 
She was carrying a large framed picture, which she now lowered to the floor before seizing her small beaded bag from the kitchen sideboard. Opening it, she proceeded to force the panting painting inside, and despite the fact that it was potentially too large to fit inside the tiny bag within a few seconds, it had vanished, like so much else, into the bag's capacious depths. Phineas Nigellus, Hermione explained, as she threw the bag onto the kitchen table with the usual sonorous clanking crash. Sorry, said Ron, but Harry understood. The painted image of Phineas Nigellus, black, was able to fit flit between his portrait in Grimwald Place and the one that hung in his headmaster's office at Hogwarts. The circular tower top room where Snape was no doubt sitting right now in triumphant possession of Dumbledore's collection of delicate silver magical instruments, the stone pensieve, the sorting hat, and unless it had been moved elsewhere, the sword of Gryffindor. Snape could see Phineas Nigellus to look inside the house for him, Hermione explained to Ron as she resumed her seat. But let him try it now. All Phineas Nigellus would be able to see is the inside of my handbag. Good thinking, said Ron, looking impressed. Thank you, smiled Hermione, pulling her soup towards her. So, Harry, what else happened today? Nothing, said Harry. Watched the ministry's entrance for seven hours. No sign of her. Saw your dad, though, Ron. He looks fine. Ron nodded his appreciation of this news. They had agreed that it was far too dangerous to try to communicate with Mr. Weasley while he walked in and out of the ministry because he was always surrounded by other ministry workers. It was, however, reassuring to catch these glimpses of him, even if he did look very strained and anxious. Dad always told me. Dad always told us most ministry people use the flu network to get to work, Ron said. That's why we haven't seen Umbridge. She'd never walk. She thinks she's too important. And what about the funny old witch, that little wizard in navy robes, Hermione asked. Oh, yeah, the bloke from Magical Maintenance, said Ron. How do you know he works for Magical Maintenance, Hermione asked. Her soup spoon suspended in midair. Dad said everyone from Magical Maintenance wears navy blue robes. But you never told us that. Hermione dropped her spoon and pulled toward her the sheaf of notes and maps, that she and Ron had been examining when Harry had entered the kitchen. There's nothing in here about navy blue robes. Nothing, she said, flipping feverishly through the pages. Well, does it really matter? Ron, it all matters. If we're going to get into the ministry and not give ourselves away when they're bound to be on the lookout for intruders, every little detail matters. We've been over this. Over this. I mean, what's the point of all this reconnaissance? Can you say that word? Reconnaissance? Reconnaissance. Reconnaissance. Uh, wizard weasel wheezes. <laughs> yeah, reconnaissance. Uh, trips if you aren't even bothering to tell us. Blimey, Hermione. I forgot one little thing. You do realize, don't you, that there's probably no more dangerous place in the whole world for us to be right now than the Ministry of... I think we should do it tomorrow, said Harry. Hermione stopped dead, her jaw hanging. Ron choked a little over his soup. Tomorrow? Repeated Hermione. You aren't serious, Harry. I am, said Harry. I don't think we're going to be much better prepared than we are now, even if we skulk around the ministry entrance for another month. The longer we put it off, the farther away that locket could be. There's already a good chance Umbridge has chucked it away and things doesn't happen. Unless, said Ron... She's found a way of opening it, and she's now possessed. 
wouldn't make any difference to her. She was so evil in the first place. Here he shrugged. Hermione was biting her lip deep in thought. We know everything important, Harry went on, addressing Hermione. We know they've stopped apparition in and out of the ministry. We know only the most senior ministry members are allowed to connect their homes to the flu network now. Because Ron heard those two unspeakables complaining about it. And we know roughly where Umbridge office is. Because of what you heard, that bearded bloke saying to his mate, I'll be up on level one. Dolores wants to see me, Hermione recited immediately. Exactly, said Harry. And we know you get in using those funny coins or tokens or whatever they are because I saw the witch are borrowing one from her friend. But we haven't gotten any. Got any. If the plan works, we will have. Harry continued calmly. I don't know, Harry. I, I don't know. There are an awful lot of things that could go wrong. So much relies on chance. That'll be true if we spend another three months preparing, said Harry. It's time to act. He could tell from Ron and Hermione's faces that they were scared. He was not particularly confident himself, and yet he was sure that the time had come to put their plan into operation. They had spent the previous four weeks taking it in turns to don the invisibility cloak and spy on the official entrance to the ministry, which Ron thinks to Mr. Weasley had known since childhood. They had tailed ministry workers on their way in, eavesdropped on their conversations, and learned by careful observation which of them could be relied upon to appear alone at the same time every day. Occasionally, there had to be a chance to sneak a daily profit out of somebody's briefcases. Slowly, they had built up the sketchy maps and notes now stacked in front of Hermione. All right, said Ron slowly. Let's say we go for it tomorrow. I think it should just be me and Harry. Ah, don't start that again, sighed Hermione. I thought we'd settle this. It's one thing hanging around the entrances under the cloak, but this is different, Hermione. Ron jabbed a finger at a copy of the Daily Prophet dated 10 days previously. You're on the list of muggleborns who didn't present themselves for interrogation, and you're, and you're supposed to be dying of spattergroit at the burrow. If anyone should, shouldn't go, it's Harry. He's got a 10,000-gallon price on his head. Fine, I'll stay here, said Harry. Let me know if you ever defeat Voldemort, won't you? As Ron and Hermione laughed, pain shot through his scar on Harry's forehead. His hand jumped to it. He saw Hermione's eyes narrow when he tried to pass off the movement by brushing his hair out of his eyes. Well, if all three of us go, we'll have to disapparate separately, Ron was saying. We can't all fit under the cloak anymore. Harry's scar was becoming more and more painful. He stood up at once. Creature hurried forward. Master has not finished his soup? Would Master prefer the savory stew, or else the treacle tart, to which Master is so partial? Thanks, creature, but I'll be back in a minute. Er, bathroom. Aware that Hermione was watching him suspiciously, Harry hurried upstairs to the hall and then to the first landing, where he dashed into the bathroom and bolted the door again. Grunting with pain, he slumped over the back black basin with its taps in the form of the open-mouthed serpents and closed his eyes. He was gliding along a twilight, a toilet, a toilet street, <laughs> twilight street. Please say that. <laughs> twilight, twilight. You got it. T w i l i t. Twilight street. A twilight street. That's not, like not, not a toilet. Twilight. 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 That's it. Gotcha. 
He was gliding along a twilight street. The buildings on either side of him and had high timbered gables. They looked like gingerbread houses. He approached one of them and then saw the whiteness of his own long-fingered hand against the door. He knocked. He felt a motioning excitement. The door opened. A laughing woman stood there. Her face fell as she looked into Harry's face, humor gone, terror replacing it. Grigorovich said a high, cold voice. She shook her head. She was trying to close the door. A white hand held it steady and prevented her from shutting it out, shutting him out. I want Grigorovich. Er, Warner Nishmir, she cried, shaking her head. He no live here. He no live here. I know him not. Abandoning the attempt to close the door, she began to back away down the dark hall, and Harry followed, gliding toward her, and his long-fingered hand had drawn his wand. Where is he? Das Weifischnisch? He move! I know not! I know not! He raised his wand. She screamed. Two young children came running into the hall. She tried to shield them with their ar- with her arms. There was a flash of green light. Harry! Harry! He opened his eyes. He had sunk to the floor. Hermione was pounding on the door again. Harry, open up! He had shouted out. He knew it. He got up and unbolted the door. Hermione toppled inside at once, regained her balance, and looked around suspiciously. Ron was right behind her, looking unnerved as he pointed his wand into the corners of the chilly bathroom. "'What were you doing?' asked Hermione sternly. "'What did you think I was doing?' asked Harry with a feeble bravado. "'You were yelling your head off,' said Ron. "'Oh, yeah, I I must have dozed off or... "'Harry, please don't insult our intelligence,' said Hermione, taking deep breaths. "'We know your scar hurts downstairs. You're white as a sheet.' Harry sat down on the edge of the bath. Fine. I've just seen Voldemort murdering a woman. By now, he's probably killed her whole family, and he didn't need to. It was Cedric all over again. They were just there. Harry, you aren't supposed to let this happen anymore, Hermione cried, her voice echoing through the bathroom. Dumbledore warned you to use a clumency. He thought the connection was dangerous. Voldemort can use it, Harry. What good is it to watch him kill and torture? How can it help? Because it means I know what he's doing, said Harry. So you're not even going to try to shut him out? Hermione, I can't. You know I'm lousy at a clumency. I never got the hang of it. You never really tried, she said hotly. I don't get it, Harry. Do you like having the special connection or relationship or what? whatever? She faltered under the look he gave her as he stood up. Like it? He said quietly. Would you like it? I, no, no, I'm, I'm sorry, Harry. I, I didn't mean... I hate it. I hate the fact that he can get inside me. That I have to watch him when he's most dangerous. But I'm going to use it. Dumbledore, forget Dumbledore. This is my choice. Nobody else's. I want to know why he's after Grigorovich. Who? He's a foreign wand maker, said Harry. He made Crumb's wand and Crumb's reckons... He's brilliant. But according to you, said Ron, Voldemort's got Ollivander locked up somewhere. If he's already got a wand maker, what does he need another one for? Maybe he agrees with Crumb. Maybe he thinks Grigorovich is better. Or else he thinks Grigorovich will be able to explain what what my wand did when he was chasing me because Ollivander didn't know. 
Harry glanced into the cracked, dusty mirror and saw Ron and Hermione exchanging skeptical looks behind his back. Harry, you keep talking about what your wand did, said Hermione, but you made it happen. Why are you so determined not to take responsibility for your own power? Because I know it wasn't me. And so does Voldemort, Hermione. We both know what really happened. They glared at each other. Harry knew that he had not convinced Hermione that she was marshalling counter-arguments against both his theory and on his wand the fact that he was permitting himself to see into Voldemort's mind. To his relief, Ron intervened. Drop it, he advised her. It's up to him. And if we're going to the ministry tomorrow, don't you reckon we should go over the plan? Reluctantly, as the other two could tell, Hermione let the matter rest. Though Harry was quite sure she would attack again at the first opportunity. In the meantime, they returned to the basement kitchen where creatures served them all stew and treacle tart. They did not get to the bed until late late that night after spending hours going over and over the plan until they could recite it. Word perfect to each other, Harry, who was now sleeping in Sirius's room, lay in bed with his one light trained on the old photograph of his father Sirius, Lupin, and Pettigrew, and muttered the plan to himself for another ten minutes. As he extinguished his wand, however, he was thinking not of Polyjuice Potion, puking pastels, or the navy blue robes of magical maintenance. He thought of Grigorovich, the wand maker, and how long he could hope to remain hidden while Voldemort sought him so determinedly. Sir, I play Dunst. the great debate card. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah. Shake that ass moving like a gypsy. <laughs> yeah, go for it. Game so, time. We haven't played one of these in a while. If you're new to the show, it means we're stopping yeah. right here and we're having a debate. So, my question to you is when Voldemort killed that woman, Harry says, you know, he probably killed the rest of the family by now, too. Do you think he killed the children and, like, the the father, if the father was there, do you think he killed everybody? My my first reaction to that would be, yeah, why not? I mean, if he wanted to kill, he tried, I mean, he was going to kill Harry in the beginning on October 31st when he was a child, and he killed Lily and James. I'm sure he didn't think at the very beginning Harry as a baby would really be a threat. So I, it doesn't say it, but I would assume so. See, I disagree. Simply for the fact that the woman, she tried to shield the children with her arms. So in effect, she died the same way Lily died. And we see what happened when he tried to kill Harry when the love from the mother went to Harry and that love protected the kids. I think Voldemort learned from his mistake because if that woman died for her children and he tried to curse those children and kill them, he would have been rebounded. The curse would have rebounded upon him again. Like, because That's like, a really good point. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. The, the, love, the love connection or whatever, like she died just like Lily died for Harry. Like, that's why like, there's what people don't understand about the prophecy is it wasn't foretold that you know he was going to curse Harry and then like it was going to backfire upon him it was like you're going to mark him as you equal yourself and he did that by killing Harry's parents and then trying to kill him but because Harry's parents died for him the love to protect him that's why he got that like ancient magic so same sort of thing here that woman tried to shield her children he killed her if he went ahead and tried to kill those kids that curse probably would have rebounded upon him right 
Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you, unless, like, that woman hated her kids. <laughs> but, I mean, I wouldn't think that would be the case. Yeah, you drive a really good point. I have to agree with you 100% that that means, yeah, he definitely, if that's the case, that means he definitely learned from his actions, which means there could very well be multiple families out there like that which means harry's only famous for this one incident so there could be there's a reason he is just the boy that lived because he just voldemort chose not to kill those kids again so otherwise we could have multiple boys who lived and voldemort would have died a long ass time ago so but you drive a good point because it makes you wonder though how do you know that woman's magic was as strong as Lily's? Which I guess goes into how much does she love her kids. But <laughs> that drives like a whole nother point. Yeah, like maybe those special. kids were trailer trash. words <laughs> oh <my laughs> Kylo Ren. Remember what he told Ray? Your family sold you for drinking money. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. But no, I'm inclined to agree with you because I try not to believe that. Especially if she stuck her arms out there like that. I would have to imagine she actually gives a shit. Maybe, or she might have just been sticking her arms out like that because it was more of like the put your hands in the air, <laughs> freeze. <laughs> yeah. Or well, maybe it was here on more. On 233, on page 233, it says she tried to shield them with her arms. So she definitely okay, tried to protect yeah, them. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's sure. true. Yeah. Yeah, I can't cut out my other theory that was somebody come get her. She's moving like <laughs> a stripper. But yeah, no, she obviously gives a shit about her kids. So I give you 100% on that. I got I to agree with you 100% on that. Yeah, it kind of brings up the other point where like if she does go ahead and try to like, like, the, like J.K. Rowling tries to make it seem like Voldemort did kill a family because that's what he says at the bottom of 233, but you never find out for sure he says he's probably killed by now he's probably killed her whole family at the bottom of 233 so like let's say like she was trying to push that narrative then that would be a plot hole because like how like, like that's literally what lily did died for her kids and that's why he couldn't kill harry and love is love like yeah. a mother's love for a child it's not special like lily doesn't have extra magic because she loves her kids more love is love so like yeah, yeah, man. I think that he either let the kids live or there's a big-ass plot hole that no one thinks about ever. So with yeah, that being no, that said, a... I'll toss my great debate card over to the side, but I definitely wanted to throw that out there because I thought it was a good little point to make. No, that was a great point, man. That's something most people don't ever think about. I know I didn't think about it the first time, so that's that's really good. I like that. That's good stuff. Um, so here we are. Uh Let's see what page I was on. 237 was where I was. Uh, so was I on 237? Let's see. 236. 237. You're, at the, you're at the top of 236. I was a little bit before then. 236, yeah. So um, Yeah, you're at the top of the page. Yep. Uh, Don seemed to follow midnight with indecent haste. You look terrible. Was Ron's greeting as he entered their room to wake Harry? Not for long, said Harry, yawning. They found Hermione downstairs in the kitchen. She was being served coffee and hot rolls by Creature and wearing the slightly manic expression that Harry associate, associated with his exam with exam review. Robes, she said underneath her breath, acknowledging their presence with nervous nod and continuing to poke around in her beaded bag. 
Polyjuice Potion, Invisibility Cloak, Decoy Detonators. You should each take a couple just in case. Puking Pastils, Nosebleed Knot, Extendable Ears. They gulp down their breakfast and then set up off the stairs. Creature bowing them out and promising to have a steak and kidney pie ready for them when they return. Bless him, said Ron fondly. And when you think I used to fantasize about cutting off his head and sticking it on the wall. They made their way onto the front step with immense caution. They could see a couple of puffy-eyed Death Eaters watching the house from across the misty square. Hermione disapparated with Ron first and then came back for Harry. After the usual brief spell of darkness and near suffocation, Harry found himself in the tiny alleyway where the first phase of their plan was scheduled to take place. It was as yet deserted, except for a couple of large bins. The first ministry workers did not usually appear here until at least 8 o'clock. Right then, said Hermione, checking her watch. She ought to be here in about five minutes, when I've stunned her. Hermione, we know, said Ron sternly. And I thought we were supposed to open the door before she got here. Hermione squealed. I nearly forgot. Stand back. She pointed her wand at the padlocked and heavy, heavily graffitied fire door beside them, which burst open with a crash. The dark corridor behind it led, and they knew from their careful scouting trips into an empty theater. Hermione pulled the door toward her to make it though as though it was still closed. And now, she said, turning back to face the other two in the alleyway, we put on the cloak again. And we wait, Ron finished, throwing it over Hermione's head like a blanket over a birdcage and rolling his eyes at Harry. Little more than a minute later, there was a tiny pop and a little ministry witch with flyaway gray hair apparated feet from them. Blinking a little in the sudden brightness, the sun had just come out from behind a cloud. She barely had time to enjoy the unexpected warmth, however, before Hermione's silent stunning spell hit her in the chest and she toppled over. Nicely done, Hermione, said Ron, emerging from behind a bin beside the theater door as Harry took off the invisibility cloak. Together, they carried the little witch into the dark passageway that led backstage. Hermione plucked a few hairs from the witch's head and added them to a flask of muddy polyjuice potion she had taken from the beaded bag. Ron was rummaging through the little witch's handbag. She's Mafalda Hopkirk, he said, reading a small card that identified the victim as an assistant in the proper use, improper use of magic office. You better take this, Hermione. And here are the tokens. He passed her several small golden coins, all in embossed with the letters M-O-M, which he had taken from the witch's purse. Hermione drank the polyjuice potion, which was now pleasant, heliotrope color, and within seconds stood before them. The double of Mafalda Hopkirk, as she removed Mafalda's spectacles and put them on. Harry checked his watch. We're running late. Mr. Magical Maintenance will be here any second. They hurried to close the door on real Mafalda. Harry and Ron threw the invisibility cloak over themselves but Hermione remained in view, waiting. Seconds later, there was another pop, and a small, ferrety-looking wizard appeared before them. Oh, hello, Mafalda. Hello, said Hermione in a quavering voice. How are you today? Not so good, actually, replied the little wizard, who looked thoroughly downcast. As Hermione and the wizard headed for the main road, Harry and Ron crept along behind them. I'm sorry to hear you're under the weather, said Hermione talking firmly over the little wizard as he tried to expound upon his problems. It was essential to stop him from reaching the street. 
Here, have a sweet. Uh, oh, no thanks. I insist, said Hermione aggressively, shaking the bag of pastels in his face. Looking rather alarmed, the little wizard took one. The effect was instantaneous. The moment the pastel touched his tongue, the little wizard started vomiting so hard that he did not even notice Hermione yanked a handful of hairs from the top of his head. Oh dear, she said, as he splattered the alley with sick. Perhaps you'd better take the day off. No, no, he choked and wretched, trying to continue on his way despite being unable to walk straight. I must, uh, today, must go. But that's just silly, said Hermione alarmed. You can't go to the work in this state. I think you ought to go to St. Mungo's and get them to sort you out. The wizard had collapsed, heaving onto all fours, still trying to crawl toward the main street. You simply can't go to work like this, cried Hermione. At last, he seemed to accept the truth of her words. Using a repulsed Hermione to claw his way back into the standing position, he turned on the spot and vanished, leaving nothing behind but the bag Ron had snatched from his hand as he went some flying chunks of vomit. Ugh, said Hermione, holding up the skirts of her robe to avoid the puddles of sick. It would have made much less mess to stun him, too. Yeah, said Ron, emerging from under the cloak, holding the wizard's bag. But I still think a whole pile of unconscious bodies would have drawn more attention. Keen on the job, though, isn't he? Chuck us the hair and the potion, then. Within two minutes, Ron stood before them, as small and ferrety as a sick wizard, and wearing the navy blue robes that had been folded in his bag. Weird. He wasn't wearing them today, wasn't it? Seeing how much he wanted to go away? Anyway, I'm Red Cattermold, according to the label in the back. Now wait here. Hermione told Harry, who was still under the invisibility cloak. We'll be back with some hairs for you. He had to wait ten minutes, but it seemed much longer to Harry. Skulking alone in the six-splattered alleyway beside the door, concealing the stunned Mafalda, finally Ron and Hermione reappeared. We don't know who he is, Hermione said, passing Harry several curly black hairs, but he's gone home with a dreadful nosebleed. Here, he's pretty tall. You'll need bigger robes. She pulled out a set of old robes, creature had laundered for them and harry retired to take the potion and change once the painful transformation was complete he was more than six feet tall and from what he could tell from his well-muscled arms powerfully built he also had a beard stowing the invisibility cloak and his glasses inside his new robes he rejoined the other two blimey that's scary said ron looking up at harry who now towered over him take one of mafalda's tokens hermione told harry Let's go. It's nearly nine. They stepped out of the alleyway together. Fifty yards along the crowded pavement, they were spiked black railings flanking two flights of steps, one labeled gentlemen and the other ladies. See you in a moment, then, said Hermione nervously, and she tottered off down the steps to ladies. Harry and Ron joined a number of oddly dressed men, descending into what appeared to be an ordinarily underground public toilet, tiled in grimy black and white. "'Morning, Reg,' called another wizard in navy blue robes as he let himself into a cubicle of inserting his golden token into a slot in the door. "'Blooming pain in the bum, this eh? Forcing us all to get to work this way? "'Who are they expecting to turn up, Harry Potter?' The wizard roared with laughter at his own wit. Ron gave a forced chuckle. "'Yeah, he said stupid, isn't it?' And he and Harry let themselves into adjoining cubicles. To Harry's left right came the sound of flushing. He crouched down and peered through the gap 
at the bottom of the cubicle, just in time to see a pair of booted feet climbing into the toilet next door. He looked left and saw Ron blinking at him. We have to flush ourselves in, he whispered. Looks like it, Harry whispered back. His voice came out deep and gravely. They both stood up. Feeling exceptionally foolish, Harry clambered into the toilet. He knew at once that he had done the right thing, though he appeared to be standing in the water. His shoes, feet, and robes remained quite dry. He reached up, pulled the chain, and next moment had zoomed down a short chute, emerging out of the fireplace into the Ministry of Magic. He got up clumsily. There was a lot more of his body than he was accustomed to. The great atrium seemed darker than Harry remembered it. Previously, a golden fountain had filled the center of the hall, casting shimmering spots of light over the polished wooden floors and, hall and walls. Now a gigantic, gigantic statue of black stone dominated the scene. It was rather frightening. This vast sculpture of a witch and wizard sitting on ornately carved thrones, looking down at the ministry workers toppling over the out the fireplaces below them. Engraved in foot-high letters at the base of the statue were the words, Magic is might. Harry received a heavy blow on the back of his legs. Another wizard had just flown out of the fireplace behind him. Out of the way! Can't you- Oh, sorry, run, Cord. Clearly frightened, the balding wizard hurried away. Apparently the man whom Harry was impersonating, Runcorn, was intimidating. Psst, said a voice. He looked around to see a wispy little witch and fairy wizard from magical maintenance gesturing to him from over beside the statue. Harry hastened to join them. You got in all right then, Hermione whispered to Harry. No, he's still stuck in the bog, said Ron. Ah, oh, very funny. It's horrible, isn't it? She said to Harry who was staring up at the statue. Have you seen what they're sitting on? Harry looked more closely and realized that what he had thought were decoratively carved thrones were actually mounds of carved humans. Hundreds and hundreds of naked bodies, men, women, and children, all with rather stupid, ugly faces twisted and pressed together to support the weight of the handsomely robed wizards. Muggles, whispered Hermione, in their rightful place. Come on, let's go. Let's get going. They joined the stream of witches and wizards moving toward the golden gates at the end of the hall, looking around as surreptitiously as possible, but there was no sign of the distinctive figure of Dolores Umbridge. They passed through the gate and into a smaller hall where queues were forming in front of the twenty golden grills, housing as many lifts. They had barely joined the nearest one when a voice said, Cattermole! They looked around. Harry's stomach turned over. One of the Death Eaters who had witnessed Dumbledore's death was striding toward them. The ministry workers beside them fell silent, their eyes downcast. Harry could feel fear rippling through them. The man's scowling, slightly brutish face was somehow at odds with his magnificent sweeping robes, which were embroidered with much gold thread. Someone in the crowd around the lifts called psychopathically. Morning, Yaxley! Yaxley ignored him. I request somebody from Magical Maintenance to sort out my office, Cattermole. It's still raining in there. Ron looked around as though hoping somebody else would intervene, but nobody spoke. Raining? In your office? That's... That's not good, is it? Ron gave a nervous laugh. Yaxley's eyes widened. You think it's funny, Cattermole, do you? A pair of witches broke away from the queue for the lift and bustled off. No, <laughs> said Ron. No, of course not. Of course... You realize that I am on my way downstairs to interrogate your wife, Cattermole. In fact, I'm quite surprised you're not down there holding her hand while she waits. 
Already given her up as a bad job, have you? Probably wise. Be sure and marry a pureblood next time. Hermione had let out a squeak of horror. Yaxley looked at her and she coughed feebly and turned away. I... I... stammered Ron. But if my wife were accused of being a mudblood, said Yaxley. Not that any woman I married would ever be mistaken for such filth. And the head of Department of Magical Law Enforcement needed a job doing. I would make it my priority to do that job, Catermole. Do you understand me? Yes, whispered Ron. Then attend to it, Catermole. And if my office is not completely dry within an hour, your wife's blood status will be in even greater doubt than it is now. The golden grill before them clattered open. With a nod and unpleasant smile to Harry, who was evidently expected to appreciate the treatment of Catermole, Yaxley swept away toward another lift. Harry, Ron, and Hermione entered theirs, but nobody followed them. It was as if they were infectious. The grill shut with a clang and the lift began to move upward. What am I going to do? Ron asked. The other two at once. He looked stricken. If I don't turn up my wife, I, I mean, Catermole's wife? We'll come with you. We should stick together, began Harry, but Ron shook his head feverishly. That's mental. We haven't got much time. You two find Umbridge. I'll go and sort out Yaxley's office. But how do I stop it? Raining? Try finite incantatum, said Hermione at once. That should stop the rain. If it's a hex or curse, if it doesn't, something's gone wrong with it, with an atmospheric charm, which will be more difficult to fix. So as an interim measure, try impervious to protect his belongings. Say it again slowly, said Ron, searching his pockets desperately for a quill, but at that moment the lift juddered to a halt. A disembodied female voice said, Level 4, Department of Regulation and Control of Magical Creatures, Incorporating Beast, Being, and Spirit Divisions, Goblin Liaison Office, and Pest Advisory Bureau. And the grills slid open again, admitting a couple of wizards and several pale violent paper airplanes that fluttered around the lamp and the ceiling of the lift. Morning, Albert, said a bushly whiskered man, smiling at Harry. He glanced over at Ron and Hermione as the lift creaked upward once more. Hermione was now whispering frantic instructions to Ron. The wizard leaned toward Harry, leering and muttered, Dirk Cresswell? From Goblin Liaison? Nice one, Albert. I'm pretty confident I'll get his job now. He winked. Harry smiled back, hoping that this would suffice. The lift stopped. The grills opened once more. Level 2, Department of Magical Law Enforcement, including the improper use of magical, Magic Office, Aurora Headquarters, and Wiz and Gamut Administration Services, and the disembodied witch, witch's voice. Harry saw Hermione gave Ron a little push, and he hurried out of the lift, followed by the other wizards leaving Harry and Hermione alone. The moment the golden door had closed, Hermione said very fast, Actually, Harry, I think I'd better go after him. I don't think he knows what he's doing, and if he gets caught, the whole thing... Level 1, Minister of Magic and Support Staff. The golden grills slid apart again, and Hermione gasped. Four people stood before them, two of them deep in conversation. A long-haired wizard wearing magnificent robes of black and gold, and a squat, toad-like witch wearing a velvet bow in her short hair and clutching a clipboard to her chest. And yeah, man, it's uh, so we can definitely tell that this chapter is starting to build up for something big. 
Um, what are some takeaways you had from this chapter? And then I'll tell you some takeaways and then I'll turn it back to you because we got a big chapter coming up right here. Yeah, man, I got like seven big things that kind of took away from this chapter. The first one was Phineas Nagelis's portrait. It's going to come into play later on. It's something big that it was one of it was a great idea. Hermione had to take it off the wall so that way Snape wouldn't be able to look in a grim old place. But it actually comes up pretty huge later on in the story as well. So uh, that was one of the big takeaways. Um, the vision of Voldemort killing a woman in front of her children, looking for Gregorovich. So why is he looking for another wand maker when he has Ollivander? We'll find that out later on. Uh, the plan itself to get into the ministry, how everything kind of came together with the Polyjuice Potion. We're about to get more into it into this one, but at least how they got in there. Uh, they used some Polyjuice Potion, used the puking pastils, and then they also used the, the nosebleed nougat to get uh, hair from Runcor as well. So how they got in there I thought was pretty important to notate. Um, the Fountain of Magical Brethren is now replaced by the Magic is Might statue. Kind of shows you the way that things are kind of going on in the country, especially in a place as prestigious as the Ministry of Magic. So instead of everyone getting along and existing, coexisting peacefully, it's wizards and witches are up here, all the rest of you peasants are down below us, is kind of the takeaway for that statue. Uh, they start doing, you know, we, we've heard about it, but now we actually see, and they're actually on their way down to do it right now, uh, blood status interrogations about, uh, you know, mm -hmm. if they're pure blood, half blood, mud blood, and what the potential consequences of that could be, which we'll find out later. And then, obviously, just kind of right where you left off, Harry, you know, disguises Runcorn, and Hermione disguises Mephala. They come face to face with Umbridge in the lift, and that's kind of how it, that's they, they they see their their quarry. It's right there where the person they were looking for is. They're face to face with her right now. So, those are the takeaways I had from it. What did you have? Yeah, that was uh, pretty much exactly what I had. I thought a huge one is, of course, Severus Snape. You know, he's become headminister of Hogwarts. <laughs> that was kind of a big one. Like, holy shit. Like, wow, who would have thought that? Um, another one, just like you said, uh, another big one there is, of course, the statue that's there now. Like, how descriptive is that? Like, remember, <clears throat> we can definitely tell like how they were originally written as children's books in Sorcerer's Stone. And now we're describing this statue of like muggles, uh, you know, men, women, and children, naked bodies with wizards like on top of them. Like how descriptive is that? Like we can tell, you know, how these books have progressed so far. Um, the poly just potion, that's a pretty awesome full circle moment. You know, we've seen this used so many different times. Um, and now that they're going to track down uh, the locket. Also, I thought it was cool, just kind of, it was not that important, but full circle moments that Yaxley, you know, we're hearing these names that we've heard before as like these Death Eaters and, um, you know, pretty intense. Like it, it just kind of puts you in the moment of trying to think from Ron, Hermione and Harry's shoes. Actually, I feel like almost like something we should have gotten maybe even a little more of in Chamber of Secrets, but going to the point of you can see how these books have progressed because now they're even having to try to fight in their heads like what's truly right. Like, do I keep my identity and focus on the goal here of getting the locket? Or like now they're intimate, like they're interrogating purebloods. Like, do Reg Cattermold, you know, Ron over here, he's like 
I'm sure in his head thinking like, do I save the life? Like, what do I do? Like I'm on a mission here, but I got to still stick to my course. So, um, but everything else you hit right on the head, that's exactly what I had. I'm going to go ahead and turn it right over to you, man. Cause we got a big chapter right here. Uh, action packed. hundred percent. And I'll take us right into it here. Chapter 13, the mogul born registration commission. Ah, Mafalda said Umbridge looking at Hermione. Travers sent you, did he? Yes, squeaked Hermione. Good, you'll do perfectly well. Umbridge spoke to the wizard in black and gold. That's that problem solved, Minister. If Mafalda can be spared for record keeping, we shall be able to start straight away. She consulted her clipboard. Ten people today, and one of them the wife of a ministry employee. Tut tut, even here in the heart of the ministry. She stepped into the lift beside Hermione, and as she did, the two wizards who have been listening to Umbridge's conversation with the minister will go straight down, Mafalda. You'll find everything you need in the courtroom. Good morning, Albert. Aren't you getting out? Yes, of course, said Harry in Runcor's deep voice. Harry stepped out of the lift, the Golden Grills clanked shut behind him. Glancing over his shoulder, Harry saw Hermione's anxious face sinking back out of sight, a tall wizard on either side of her, Umbridge's velvet bow hair level with her shoulder. What brings you up here, Runcor? asked the new Minister of Magic. His long black hair and beard were streaked with silver and a great overhanging forehead shadowed his glinting eyes, putting Harry in the mind of a crab looking out from beneath a rock. Uh, needed a quick word with... Harry hesitated for a fraction of a second. Arthur Weasley. Someone said he was up on level one. Ah, said Pius Thickness. Has he been caught having contact with an undesirable? No, said Harry, his throat dry. No, nothing like that. Oh well, it's only a matter of time, said Thickness. If you ask me, blood traders are as bad as mudbloods. Good day, Runcor. Good day, Minister. Harry watched Thickness march away along the thickly carpeted corridor. The moment the Minister had passed out of sight, Harry tugged the invisibility cloak out from under his heavy back cloak and threw it over himself and set off along the corridor in the opposite direction. Runcor was so tall that Harry was forced to stoop to make sure his big feet were hidden. Panic pulsed in the pit of his stomach. As he passed gleaming wooden door after gleaming wooden door, each bearing a small plaque with the owner's name and occupation on it, the might of the ministry, its complexity and impenetrability seemed to force itself upon him so that the plan he had been carefully concocting with Ron and Hermione over the past four weeks seemed laughably childish. They had concentrated all their efforts on getting inside without being detected. They had not given a moment's thought to what they would do if they were forced to separate. Now Hermione was stuck in court proceedings which would undoubtedly last hours and Ron was struggling to do magic that Harry was quite sure was beyond him. A woman's liberty possibly depending on the outcome. And he, Harry, was wandering around the top floor when he knew perfectly well that his quarry had just gone down in the lift. He stopped walking, leaned against a wall, and tried to decide what to do. The silence pressed upon him. There was no bustling or talk of swift footsteps here. The purple carpeted corridors were as hushed as though the muffliato charm had been cast over the place. Her office must be up here, Harry thought. It seemed most unlikely that Umbridge would keep her jewelry in her office, but on the other hand, it seemed foolish not to search and make sure. So he therefore set off along the corridor again, passing nobody but a frowning wizard who was murmuring instructions to a quill that floated in front of him, scribbling on a trail of parchment. Now paying attention to the names on the doors, Harry turned a corner. Halfway along the next corridor, he emerged into a wide open space where a dozen witches and wizards sat in rows at small desks, not unlike school desks, though much more highly polished and free from graffiti. Harry paused to watch them, for the effect was quite mesmerizing. They were all waving and twiddling their wands in unison, and squares of colored paper were flying in every direction like little pink kites. After a few seconds, Harry realized that there was a rhythm to the proceedings, that the papers all formed the same pattern, and after a few more seconds, he realized that what he was watching was the creation of pamphlets. The paper squares were pages, in which when assembled, folded, and magicked into place, fell into neat stacks beside each witch or wizard. 
Harry crept closer. Although the workers were so intent on what they were doing, he doubted they would notice a carpet-muffled footstep, and he slid a completed pamphlet from the pile beside a young witch. He examined it beneath the invisibility cloak. Its pink cover was emblazoned with a golden title. Mudbloods and the dangers they posed to a peaceful, pure-blood society. Beneath the title was a picture of a red rose with a simpering face in the middle of its petals, being strangled by a green weed with fangs and a scowl. There was no author's name upon the pamphlet, but again, the scars on the back of his right hand seemed to tingle as he examined it. Then the young witch beside him confirmed his suspicion as she said, still waving and twirling her wand, Will the old hag be interrogating mudbloods all day, does anyone know? Careful, said the wizard beside her, glancing around nervously. One of his pages slipped and fell to the floor. What, has she got magic ears as well as an eye now? The witch glanced towards the shiny mahogany door facing the space full of pamphlet makers. Harry, too, looked, and rage reared in him like a snake. Where there might have been a peephole on a muggle front door, a large, round eye with a brilliant blue iris had been set into the wood. An eye that was shockingly familiar to anybody who had known Alistair Moody. And for a split second, Harry forgot where he was and what he was doing there. He even forgot that he was invisible. He strode straight over to the door to examine the eye. It was not moving. It gazed blindly upward, frozen. And the plaque beneath it read, Dolores Umbridge, Senior Undersecretary to the Minister. And below that, a slightly shinier new plaque read, Head of the Muggleborn Registration Commission. Harry looked back at the dozen pamphlet makers. Though they were intent upon the work, he could hardly suppose that they would not notice if the door of an empty office opened in front of them. He therefore withdrew from an inner pocket an odd object with little waving legs and a rubber bulbed horn for a body. Crouching down beneath the cloak, he placed the decoy detonator on the ground. It scuttled away at once through the legs of witches and wizards in front of him. A few moments later, during which Harry waited with his hands upon the doorknob, there came a loud bang and a great deal of acrid black smoke billowed from a corner. The young witch in the front row shrieked. Pink pages flew everywhere as she and her fellows jumped up, looking around for the source of the commotion. Harry turned the doorknob, stepped into Umbridge's office, and closed the door behind him. He felt as he had stepped back in time. The room was exactly like Umbridge's office at Hogwarts. Lace draperies, doilies, and dried flowers covered every available surface, and the walls bore the same ornamental plates, each featuring a highly colored, beribboned kitten gambling and frisking with sickening cuteness. The desk was covered with a flouncy flowered cloth, and behind Mad Eye's eye, a telescopic attachment enabled Umbridge to spy on the workers on the other side of the door. Harry took a long look through it and saw that they were still gathered around the decoy detonator. He wrenched the telescope out of the door, leaving a hole behind, pulled the magical eyeball out of it, and placed it in his pocket. Then he turned to face him again, raised his wand, and murmured, Accio Locket. Nothing happened, but he had not expected it to. No doubt Umbridge knew about all about perfective charms and spells. He therefore hurried behind her desk and began pulling open drawers. He saw quills and notebooks and spellotape, enchanted paper clips that coiled snake-like from the drawer and had to be beaten back, a fussy little lace box full of spare hair bows and clips, but no sign of a locket. There was a filing cabinet behind the desk, and Harry set to searching it. Like Filch's filing cabinet at Hogwarts, it was full of folders, each labeled with a name. It was not until Harry reached the bottommost drawer where he saw something to distract him from his search. Mr. Weasley's file. He pulled it out and opened it. Arthur Weasley. Blood status. Pure blood, but with unacceptable pro-muggle leanings. Known member of the Order of the Phoenix. Wife. Pure blood. Seven children. 
two youngest at Hogwarts. NB, youngest son, currently at home, seriously ill, ministries inspectors have confirmed. Security status, tracked. All movements are being monitored. Strong likelihood undesirable number one will contact. Has stayed with Weasley family previously. Undesirable number one, Harry muttered under his breath as he replaced Mr. Weasley's folder and shut the drawer. He had an idea he knew who that was. And sure enough, as he straightened up and glanced around the office for fresh hiding places, he saw a poster of himself on the wall with the words undesirable number one emblazoned across his chest. A little pink note was stuck to it with a picture of a kitten in the corner. Harry moved across to read it and saw that Umbridge had written, To be punished. Angrier than ever, he proceeded to grope in the bottoms of the vases and baskets of dried flowers, but was not at all surprised that the locket was not there. He gave the office one last sweeping look, and his heart skipped a beat. Dumbledore was staring at him from a small rectangular mirror propped up on a bookcase beside the desk. Harry crossed the room at a run, snatched it up, but realized the moment he touched it that it was not a mirror at all. Dumbledore was smiling wistfully out of the front cover of a glossy book. Harry had not immediately noticed the curly green writing across his hat, The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore, nor the slightly smaller writing across his chest, by Rita Skeeter, best-selling author of Armando Dippet, Master or Moron. Harry opened the book at random and saw a full-page photograph of two teenage boys, both laughing immoderately with their arms around each other's shoulders. Dumbledore, now with the elbow length hair, had grown a tiny wispy beard that recalled the one on Crumb's chin that had so annoyed Ron. The boy who roared in silent amusement beside Dumbledore had a gleeful, wild look about him. His golden hair fell in curls to his shoulders. Harry wondered whether it was a young doge, but before he could catch the caption, the door of the office opened. If Thickness had not been looking over his shoulder as he entered, Harry would not have had time to pull the invisibility cloak over himself. As it was, he thought Thickness might have caught a glimpse of movement, because for a moment or two he remained quite still, staring curiously at the place where Harry had just vanished, perhaps deciding that all he had seen was Dumbledore scratching his nose on the front of the book, for Harry had hastily replaced it on the shelf. Thickness finally walked to the desk and pointed his wand at the quill standing ready in the ink pot. It sprang out and began scribbling a note to Umbridge. Very slowly, hardly daring to breathe, Harry backed out of the office and into the open area beyond. The pamphlet makers were still clustered around the remains of the decoy detonator, which continued to hoot feebly as it smoked. Harry hurried up the corridor as the young witch said, I bet it sneaked up here from experimental charms. They're so careless. Remember that poisonous duck? Speeding back towards the list, Harry viewed his options. It had never been likely that the locket was here at the ministry, and there was no hope of bewitching its whereabouts out of Umbridge while she was sitting in a crowded court. Their priority now had to be to leave the ministry before they were exposed and try again another day. The first thing to do was find Ron, and then they could work out a way of extracting Hermione from the courtroom. The lift was empty when it arrived. Harry jumped in and pulled off the invisibility cloak and as it started its descent, and to his enormous relief, when it rattled to a halt at level two, a soaking wet and wild-eyed Ron got in. Morning, he stammered to Harry as the lift set off again. Ron, it's me, Harry. Harry, blimey, I forgot what you look like. Why isn't Hermione with you? She had to go down to the courtrooms with Umbridge. She couldn't refuse him, but before Harry could finish the lift, head stopped again. The doors opened and Mr. Weasley walked inside, talking to an elderly witch whose blonde hair was teased so high it resembled an anthill. I quite understand, I quite understand what you're saying, Wakanda. But I'm afraid I cannot be party to... Mr. Weasley broke off. He had noticed Harry. It was very strange to have Mr. Weasley glare at him with that much dislike. The lifted doors had closed, and the four of them trundled downwards once more. Oh, hello, Reg, said Mr. Weasley, looking around at the sound of steady dripping from Ron's robes. Isn't your wife in for questioning today? 
Uh, what's happened to you? Why are you so wet? Yaxley's office is raining, said Ron. He addressed Mr. Weasley's shoulder, and Harry felt sure that he was scared that his father might recognize him if they looked directly into each other's eyes. Stop it. So they've sent me to get Bernie Pillsworth. I think they said... Yes. A lot of offices have been raining lately, said Mr. Weasley. Did you try Mediolo Jinx Recanto? I worked for Bletchley. Mediolo Jinx Recanto, whispered Ron. No, I didn't. Thanks, I mean, thanks, Arthur. The lift door is open, the old witch with the anthill hair left, and Ron dotted past her out of sight. Harry meant to follow him, but found his path blocked as Percy Weasley strode into the lift, his nose buried in some papers as he was reading. It was not until the doors had clanged shut again did Percy realize that he was in a lift with his father. He glanced up, saw Mr. Weasley, turned radish red, and left the lift the moment the doors opened again. For the second time, Harry tried to get out, but this time found his way blocked by Mr. Weasley's arm. One moment, Runcorn. The lift doors closed as they clanked down another floor. Mr. Weasley said, I hear you laid information about Dirk Cresswell. Harry had the impression that Mr. Weasley's anger was no less because of the brush with Percy. He decided his best chance was to act stupid. Sorry, he said. Don't pretend, Runcor, said Mr. Weasley fiercely. You tracked down the wizard who faked his family tree, didn't you? I, uh, so what if I did, said Harry. So Dirk Questwell is ten times the wizard you are, said Mr. Weasley quietly, as the lift sank even lower. And if he survives Azkaban, you'll have to answer to him, not to mention his wife, his sons, his friends. Arthur, Harry interrupted. You know you're being tracked, don't you? Is that a threat, Runcorn, said Mr. Weasley loudly. No, said Harry. It's a fact. They're watching your every move. The lift doors opened. They had reached the atrium. Mr. Weasley gave Harry a scathing look and swept from the lift. Harry stood there shaken. He wished he was impersonating somebody other than Runcorn. The lift doors clanged shut. Harry pulled out the invisibility cloak and put it back on. He would try to extricate Hermione on his own while Ron was dealing with the reigning office. When the doors opened, he stepped out into the torchless stone passageway quite different from the wood-paneled and carpeted corridors above. And as the lift rattled away again, Harry shivered slightly, looked towards a distant black door that marked the entrance to the Department of Mysteries. He set off his destination, not the black door, but the doorway he remembered on the left-hand side, which opened onto the flight of stairs down to the court chambers. His mind grappled with the possibilities as he crept down them. He still had a couple of decoy detonators, but perhaps it would be better to simply knock on the courtroom door, enter as Runcorn, and ask for a quick word with Mafalda. Of course, he didn't know whether Runcorn was sufficiently important enough to get away with this, and even if he managed it, Hermione's non-reappearance might trigger a search before they were clear of the ministry. Lawson thought he did not immediately register the unnatural chill that was sweeping over him, as if he were descending into a fog. It was becoming colder and colder with every step he took, a cold that reached right down into his throat and tore at his lungs. And then he felt stealing sense of despair, hopelessness, filling him, expanding inside of him. Dementors, he thought, and as he reached the foot of the stairs and turned to his right, he saw a dreadful scene. The dark passage outside the courtrooms was packed with tall, black-hooded figures, their faces completely hidden, their ragged breath coming only in the sound in the place. The petrified Muggleborns, brought in for questioning, sat huddled and shivered on hard wooden benches. Most of them were hiding their faces in their hands, perhaps as an instinctive attempt to shield themselves from the Dementors' greedy mouths. Some were accompanied by families, others sat alone. The Dementors were gliding up and down in front of them, and the cold, the hopelessness, and despair of the place laid themselves upon Harry like a curse. Fight it, he told himself, but he knew that he could not conjure Patronus here without revealing himself instantly. So he moved forward as silently as he could, and with every step he took, numbness seemed to steal over his brain, but he forced himself to think of Hermione and of Ron, who needed him. Moving through the towering black figures was terrifying. The eyeless faces hidden beneath the hoods turned as he passed, and he felt that they had sensed him. Sensed, perhaps, a human presence that still had some hope, some resilience. 
and then abruptly, shockingly, amid the frozen silence, one of the dungeon doors on the left of the corridor was flung open, and screams echoed out of it. No, no, I'm Half-Blood. I'm Half-Blood, I tell you, my father was a wizard. He was, look him up. Archie Alderton. He was a well-known broomstick designer. Look him up, I tell you. Get your hands off of me. Get your hands off. This is your final warning, said Umbridge's soft voice, magically magnified so that it sounded clearly over the man's desperate screams. If you struggle, you will be subjected to the Dementor's kiss. The man's screams subsided, but dry sobs echoed through the corridor. Take him away, said Umbridge. Two Dementors appeared in the door of the courtroom, their rotting scab hands clutching the upper arms of a wizard who appeared to be fainting. They glided away down the corridor with him, and darkness trailed behind them and swallowed them from sight. Next, Mary Cattermole, called Umbridge, and a small woman stood up, and she was trembling from head to foot. Her dark hair was smoothed back into a bun, and she wore long, plain robes. Her face was completely bloodless as she passed the Dementors, Harry saw a shudder. He did it instinctively, without any sort of plan, because he hated the sight of her walking alone into the dungeon. As the door began to swing closed, he slipped into the courtroom behind her. It was not the same courtroom in which she had once been interrogated for improper use of magic. This one was smaller, though the ceiling was quite as high. It gave a claustrophobic sense of being stuck at the bottom of a deep well. There were more Dementors in here, casting their freezing aura over the place. They stood like faceless sentinels in the corners furthest from the high raised platform. Here, behind the balustrade, sat Umbridge with Yaxia on one side of her and Hermione, quite as white-faced as Mrs. Cattermole, on the other, and at the foot of the platform, a bright silver long-haired cat prowled up and down, up and down, and Harry realized that it was there to protect the prosecutors from despair that emanated from the Dementors. That was for the accused to feel, not the accusers. Sit down, said Umbridge in her soft, silky voice. Mrs. Catamore stumbled to the single seat in the middle of the floor beneath the raised platform. The moment she sat down, chains clinked out of the arms of the chair and bound her there. You are Mary Elizabeth Catamore? asked Umbridge. Mrs. Caramel gave a single shaky nod. Married to Reginald Caramel of the Magical Maintenance Department? Mrs. Caramel burst into tears. I don't know where he is. He was supposed to meet me here. Umbridge ignored her. Mother to Maisie, Ellie, and Alfred Caramel? Mrs. Caramel sobbed harder than ever. They're frightened. They think I might not come home. Spare us, spat Yaxley. The brats of Mudbloods do not stir our sympathies. Mrs. Caramel sobs masked Harry's footsteps as he made his way carefully towards the steps that led up to the raised platform. The moment he had passed the place where the Patronus cat patrolled, he felt the change in temperature. It was warm and comfortable here. The Patronus, he was sure, was Umbridge's, and it glowed brightly because she was so happy here, in her element, upholding the twisted laws she helped write. Slowly and very carefully, he edged his way along the platform behind Umbridge, Yaxley and Hermione, taking a seat behind the ladder. He was worried about making Hermione jump. He thought of casting the Muffliato charm upon Umbridge and Yaxley, but even murmuring the word might cause Hermione alarm. Then Umbridge raised her voice to address Mrs. Cattermole, and Harry seized his chance. I'm behind you, he whispered in Hermione's ear. And as expected, she jumped so violently that she nearly overturned the bottle of ink which she was supposed to be recording the interview, but both Umbridge and Yaxley were concentrating upon Mrs. Cattermole, and this went unnoticed. A wand was taken from you upon your arrival at the ministry today, Mrs. Cattermole, Umbridge was saying. Eight and three-quarter inches, cherry, unicorn hair core. Do you recognize this description? Mrs. Cattermole nodded, mopping her eyes on her sleeve. Could you please tell us from which witch or wizard you took that wand? Took, sobbed Mrs. Cattermole. I didn't take it from anyone. I bought it when I was 11 years old. It, it chose me, she cried harder than ever. Umbridge laughed, a soft girlish laugh that made Harry want to attack her. She leaned forward over the barrier to better observe her victim, and something gold swung forward too and dangled over the void, the locket. 
Hermione had seen it. She let out a little squeak, but Umbridge and Yaxley, still intent upon their prey, were deaf to everything else. No, said Umbridge. No, I don't think so, Mrs. Cattermole. Wands only choose witches or wizards. You are not a witch. I have your responses to the questionnaire that you sent to me here. Mafalda, pass them to me. Umbridge held out a small hand. She looked so toad-like that at that moment Harry was quite surprised not to see webs between the stubby fingers. Hermione's hands were shaking with shock. She fumbled in a pile of documents balanced on her chair beside her, and finally withdrawing a sheaf of parchment with Mrs. Cattermole's name on it, she said, that, That's pretty, Dolores, pointing at the pendant gleaming in the ruffled folds of Umbridge's blouse. What? snapped Umbridge, glancing down. Oh, yes. An old family heirloom, she said, patting the locket lying on her large bosom. The S stands for Selwyn. I am related to the Selwyns. Indeed, there are few pure-blood families to whom I am not related. A pity, she continued in a louder voice, flicking through Mrs. Cattermole's questionnaire. The same cannot be said for you. Parents, professions, greengrocers. Yaxley laughed jeeringly below the fluffy silver cap patrolled up and down and Dementor stood waiting in the corners. It was Umbridge's lie that brought the blood surging into Harry's brain and obliterated his sense of caution that the locket she had taken as a bribe from a petty criminal was being used to bolster her own pure blood credentials. He raised his wand, not even troubling to keep it concealed underneath the invisibility cloak, and said, Stupefy! And there was a flash of red light. Umbridge crumpled, and her forehead hit the edge of the balustrade. Mrs. Cattermole's papers slid off her lap onto the floor, and down below, the prowling silver cat vanished. Ice-cold hair hit them like an oncoming wind, and Yaxley, confused, looked around for the source of the trouble and saw Harry's disembodied hand and wand pointing at him. He tried to draw his own wand, but too late. Stupefy! And he actually slid to the ground, lied, curled up on the floor. Harry! Hermione, if you think I was going to sit there and let her pretend... Harry, Mrs. Cattermole! Harry whirled around, throwing off the invisibility cloak. Down below, the Dementors had moved out of their corners. They were gliding towards them and chained to the chair. Whether because the Patronus had vanished or because they sensed that their masters were no longer in control, they seemed to have abandoned their restraint. Mrs. Carabone let out a terrible scream of fear as a slimy, scabbed hand grasped her chin and forced her face back. Expecto Patronum! The silver stag soared from the tip of Harry's wand and leaped toward the mentors, which fell back and melted into the dark shadows again. The stag's light, more powerful and more warming than the cat's protection, filled the whole dungeon as it cantered around and around the room. Get the horcrux, Harry told Hermione. He ran back down the stone steps, stuffing the invisibility cloak back into his bag, and approached Mrs. Cattermole. You, she whispered, gazing into his face. But, but Reg said you were the one who submitted my name for questioning. Did I? muttered Harry, tugging at the chains, binding her arms. Well, I've had a change of heart. Defendo! Nothing happened. Hermione, how do I get rid of these chains? Wait, I'm, I'm trying something up here. Hermione, we're surrounded by Dementors. I know that, Harry, but if she wakes up and the locket's gone, I need to duplicate it. Jiminio! There, that should fool her. Hermione came running downstairs. Uh, let's see. Relicio! And the chains clinked and withdrew from the arms of the chair. Mrs. Cattermole looked just as frightened as ever before. I don't understand, she whispered. You're going to leave with us here, said Harry, pulling her to her feet. Go home, grab your children, and get out. Get out of the country if you've got to. Disguise yourself and run. You've seen how it is. You won't get anything like a fair hearing here. Harry, said Hermione, how are we going to get out of here with all those Dementors outside the door? Patronuses, said Harry, pointing his wand at his own. The stag slowed and walked, still gleaming brightly towards the door. As many as we can muster. Do yours, Hermione. Expect, expect a Patronum, said Hermione. Nothing happened. 
It's the only spell she ever has trouble with, Harry told a completely bemused Mrs. Caramel. Been unfortunate, really. Come on, Hermione. Expect a Patronum! And a silver otter burst from the end of Hermione's wand and swam gracefully through the air to join the stag. Come on, said Harry, and he led Hermione and Mrs. Caramel to the door. When the Patronuses glided out of the dungeon, there were cries of shock from people waiting outside. Harry looked around. The Dementors were falling back on both sides of them, melding into the darkness, scattering before the silver creatures. It's been decided that you should all go home and go into hiding with your families, Harry told the waiting Muggleborns, who were dazzled by the light of the Patronuses and were still cowering slightly. Go abroad if you can. Just get well away from the Ministry. That's uh, the new official position. Now, if you just follow the Patronuses, you'll be able to leave from the atrium. They managed to get up the stone steps without being intercepted, but as they approached the lifts, Harry started to have misgivings. They emerged from the atrium with a silver stag, and otter soaring alongside it, and twenty or so people, half of them accused of mug being muggleborns, he could not help feeling that they would attract unwanted attention. He had just reached this unwelcome conclusion when the lift clanged to a halt in front of them. Reg! screamed Mrs. Cattermole, and she threw herself into Ron's arms. Runcorn let me out! He attacked Umbridge and Yaxley, and he's told all of us to leave the country. I think we better do it, Reg. I really do. Let's hurry home, fetch the children, and, and why are you so wet? Water, murmured Ron as, as he disengaged himself. Harry, they know there are intruders inside the ministry. Something about a hole in Umbridge's office door. I reckon we've got five minutes, if that. Hermione's Patronus vanished with a pop as she turned a horror struck to face Harry. Harry, if we're trapped here, we won't be if we move fast, said Harry. He addressed the silent group behind them, all who were gaping at him. Anybody got wands? About half of them raised their hands. Okay, all of you who haven't got wands need to attach yourself to somebody who has. We'll need to be there fast before they stop us. Come on. They managed to cram themselves into two lifts. Harry's Patronus stood sentinel before the golden grills as they shut the lifts and they began to rise. Level 8, said the witch's cool voice. Atrium. Harry knew at once that they were in trouble. The atrium was full of people moving from fireplace to fireplace, sealing them off. Harry, sweet Hermione, what are we going to... Stop! Harry thundered, and with the powerful voice of Runcorn echoed throughout the atrium, the wizard sealing the fireplaces froze. Follow me, he whispered to the group of terrified Muggleborns who moved forward in a huddle, shepherded by Ron and Hermione. What's up, Albert? said the same balding wizard who had followed Harry out of the fireplace earlier. He looked nervous. This lot needs to leave before you seal the exit, said Harry, with all the authority he could muster. The group of wizards in front of him looked at one another. We've been told to seal all the exits and not let anyone... Are you contradicting me? Harry blustered. Would you like me to have your family tree examined like I had Dirk Cresswell's? Sorry, gasped the balding wizard, backing away. I, I didn't mean nothing, Albert, but I thought I, I thought they were in for questioning and their blood is pure, said Harry, and his deep voice echoed impressively through the hall. Purer than many of yours, I dare say. Off you go, he boomed to the Muggleborns, who scurried forward into the fireplaces and began to vanish in pairs. The ministry wizards hung back, some looking confused, others scared and resentful. Then Mary! Mrs. Cattermole looked over her shoulder. The real Reg Cattermole, no longer vomiting, but pale and wane, had just come running out of a lift. R Reg? She looked from her husband to Ron, who swore loudly. The balding wizard gaped, his head turned ludicrously from one Reg Cattermole to the other. Hey, what, what's going on? What is this? Seal the exit! Seal it! Yaxley had burst out of another lift and was running towards the group beside the fireplaces, into which all the Muggleborns but Mrs. Cattermole had now vanished. As a balding wizard lifted his wand, Harry raised an enormous fist and punched him, sending him flying through the air. He's been helping Muggleborns escape, Yaxley, Harry shouted. The balding wizard's colleagues set up an uproar, under cover of which Ron grabbed Mrs. Caramel, pulled her into the still-open fireplace, and disappeared. Confused, Yaxley looked from Harry 
to the punched wizard while the real Reg Catamore screamed, My wife! Who was that with my wife? What's going on? And Harry saw Yaxley's head turn. He saw an inkling of the truth dawn on that brutish face. Come on! Harry shouted at Hermione. He seized her hand and they jumped from the fireplace together as Yaxley's curse sailed over Harry's head. They spun for a few seconds before shooting up out of the toilet into a cubicle. Harry flung open the door. Ron was standing there beside the sink, still wrestling with Mrs. Cattermole. Reg, I don't understand. Let go. I'm not your husband. You've got to go home. There was a noise in the cubicle behind him. Harry looked around and Yaxley had disappeared. Let's go, Harry yelled. He seized Hermione by the hand and Ron by the arm and turned on the spot. Darkness engulfed them along with a sensation of compressing bands, but something was wrong. Hermione's hand seemed to be slipping out of his grip. He wondered whether he was going to suffocate. He could not breathe or see. The only solid things in the world were Ron's arm and Hermione's fingers, which were slowly slipping away. Then he saw the door of number 12 Grimwald Place, with its serpent door knocker, but before he could draw breath, there was a scream, a flash of purple light, Hermione's hand was suddenly vice-like upon his, and everything went dark again. And that is the end of that chapter 13. So Pretty badass uh, chapter, man. Dude, I love that chapter. A lot of cool things happen. Uh, with that being said, seeing how I kind of read it, go ahead and give your takeaways on what you took from that chapter. It was action-packed. <laughs> um, first big takeaway is, like, she's so sick that, uh, I mean, I guess it, it more of, like, was brought up last chapter, but when Harry, like, buried Mad-Eye Moody's eye, like, in his pocket, so he's going to, you know, kind of has a moment with that later on, so that kind of stood out to me. That was good, but... <laughs> The fact that Umbridge is so sick, she has it on the door. Uh, it's pretty messed up. But, um, of course, you know, it kind of gives this sense of, like, how we've had that horror moment before. Almost like, you know, we talked about so many times. Like, it, it's just kind of happened over and over again in the series. Almost like that Game of Thrones moment where Arya was going through... Uh, the library or wherever they were in season eight, like with the zombies, it was like the same with the Dementors. Like my thought is this should definitely be a horror night's house <laughs> and them going through the department of mysteries and the Dementors, you could just put the people in the veils and they just like turn their heads <laughs> as you're walking through. That would be so creepy. Um, you know, this is the first time we've seen the locket in forever like forever and we really didn't see it in detail uh and you know it describes the locket as being the size of a chicken egg like that's like a massive ass locket with the s on it uh which is so cool because you know it's like salazar's locket which is badass um and you're seeing like how umbridge her sick ass self is back and now she's gotten even worse she's literally interrogating people with dementors now so it's not the umbrage in order of the phoenix like just <clears throat> with her little voice and notepad now she's like pulling the whole you know pensive memory thing like how they had in the courtroom like the whole hearing incident like interrogating people with dementors threatening to suck out their soul because they're mudblood so it's it definitely stood out to me. It's an action-packed chapter. You know, you have this whole back and forth with Reg's wife is, like, trying to figure out what's going on because the real Reg isn't Ron. They're all standing there, but Harry plays that part to the T of uh, 
you know, the guy he is with the polyjuice potion. And then you have that moment at the end there, uh, you know, Hermione that's, you know, disapparating out of there into trying to get back to Grimwald's place, but she's slipping. So you're like, what the hell is going on? And with that flash of purple light. So it, it was a lot packed into that chapter, but it's definitely one of those action packed chapters that you definitely, uh, you know, keeps you on the edge of your seat, like not a boring moment at all in that chapter. What about you, man? Uh, for me, you know, the fact that they're all separated, like the fact that they didn't have any sort of plan if that were to happen, like, oh shoot, like, are like, you know, they all had this awesome plan mm-hmm. about how they're going to get in and then Harry like starts thinking to himself, damn, like it sounds like a kid's plan now. If we didn't do anything thought process at all, if we all got separated. So I thought that was funny, <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, Hermione as Mafalda being taken down to do like a blood status hearing was kind of ironic because Hermione's a mudblood. Like, I just thought mm-hmm. that was a little ironic. Uh, the pamphlets <laughs> created regarding how mudbloods are a danger to the pure blood wizarding society. That was a uh, that was something else that evil that Dumbledore or uh, Umbers decided to uh implement there. Speaking of Dumbledore, that book, The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore, is officially released and there is a copy in Umbridge's mm-hmm. office, and that's going to play a big part later on. Uh, the other takeaway I have is the Death Eaters must have found Moody's body because Umbridge had Moody's magical eye built into her office door. So apparently they got there yeah. first. They must have got the Moody's body before Bill and Lupin were able to find it. So um, from there, they bump into Arthur, and Harry, disguised as Albert Runcorn, advises him that all of his movements are being monitored. That's important. You know, a big takeaway that was there. Good. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Uh, Umbridge threatens a man with a Dementor's kiss who's being interrogated. And to me, it's just crazy the lengths they go to. Uh, to like ensure that they're like it's not innocent to proven guilty with her it's just guilty period <laughs> like there's the like, like it was even saying how the patronuses were protecting the prosecutors from the dementors effect but the the defendants you're feeling all this cold shit it's not innocent to proven guilty it's you're guilty and i'm going to get a confession out of you one way or the other so yeah thought that was pretty ridiculous also the badass battle in the courtroom Harry just gets annoyed at Umbridge for lying and trying to get away with it and just hits her with the stupefy then hits Yaxley then like you said the Dementors crowding in on them they gotta throw out their Patronuses break through the corridors get up to the atrium thought that was pretty damn cool uh, but this is actually one of the bigger takeaways that you don't want to brush over because when I first read this book I did brush over this part and didn't even realize it uh, Hermione yeah. uses a cool duplicating charm to make a replica of the locket so that it might fool Umbridge mm-hmm. and that her and the Death Eaters would not realize that they had been there specifically to take a locket. So the spell is called Gemenio, and I think that's a genius move by Hermione. So, because, like, yeah. that changes everything. What if they uh, Umbridge realizes her locket's gone, then all of a sudden it goes through, like, the pipeline, the Dementors are, or not Dementors, the Death Eaters are like, hey, Potter came in to steal this locket from Umbridge, then all of a sudden it gets back to Voldemort. Like, a lot of bad things could have happened from the start. Yeah. But because Hermione was thinking on her feet, she made a duplicate locket. And I totally, when I was a kid, I read past that and didn't really remember she did that, <laughs> honestly. Yeah. So uh, then, uh, yeah, the the next big takeaway I had is they helped the Muggleborns escape. And the very last thing I have is when they escape, they get to see the door of Grimald Place, but then before they know it, they apparate once more. And we're about to kind of get yep. in to see why that is. So those are the mm-hmm. big takeaways that I had. I'm thinking about starting this chapter off with some bullet points and then getting to that point where I'll turn it over to you to read the rest of the chapter. Does that sound good to you? Yeah, it's cool with me, man. Good shit. So uh, getting into now, we're on chapter 14, The Thief. 
on page 269, the first thing I took away as a bullet point is Ron's arm was splinched during apparition, and they had to use essence of Dittany to kind of help heal his arm a little bit, get it to a spot where his life was no longer potentially in danger from loss of blood and all that. Yeah. Uh, in page 270, Hermione kind of gives him the reason why they didn't stop at Grimmauld Place. And the reason why is because Yaxley grabbed Hermione during apparition. And once they stopped at Grimmauld Place, Yaxley loosened his grip and she was able to shake him off, but not before Yaxley was inside the Fidelius Charm's protection. So now Yaxley can get into 12 Grimmauld Place and they can't go back there. That's a huge bullet point, big moments. So now, you know, they are where, and the next thing I have is on page 271, when we actually realize where they transport him to, this is a full circle moment. They transport, she transported them and apparated them to where the Quidditch World Cup was held back in Goblet of Fire. So cool things just kind of make their way back around in this story. And this is one of those small things. On page 271, we get to learn that Hermione took them to where they held the Quidditch World Cup. And then from there, on page 272, I'll just go ahead and turn it over to you and you can take us through the rest of the chapter. Sounds good. It works for me, man. Uh, unless was you, there anything else you, had any you other, wanted to mention, though? Uh, nothing else I wanted to mention on there, unless you had any other bullet points that you wanted to talk about before hitting through uh, page 272 to the end of the chapter, in case I missed anything. But those are the big bullet point takeaways I had before kind of just jumping back into going through the rest of the chapter. Did you have anything, or did you just want to take it from the top of 272 and go from there, or what? Yeah, no, I'll just take it from the top of 272. Uh, basically, what I was going to say, um, just going to the fact of Ron splinched, remember they... Uh, of course, you've seen it before where they were practicing their apparition in Order of the Phoenix. Um, and, you know, they've apparated Half Blood Prince. And, Not Half Order Blood Prince. Phoenix. Okay, yeah, Half Blood Prince when they were practicing that. Um, but they described it as just being gruesome. Um, just to read this quick sentence on that, uh, it said um, Then an object twitched close to his face. He pushed himself onto his hands and knees, ready to face some small, fierce creature but saw that the object was Ron's foot. Looking around, Harry saw that they and Hermione were lying on a forest floor, apparently alone. Harry's first thought was the forbidden forest, and for a moment, even though he knew how foolish and dangerous it would be for them to appear on the grounds of Hogwarts, his heart leapt and thought the sneaking cr- trees through the tree uh, the thought of the sneaking through the trees to Hagrid's hut. However, in a few moments it took for Ron to give a low groan and Harry start to crawling towards him. He realized that this was not the Forbidden Forest. The trees looked younger, that they were more widely spaced and ground clearer. Um, just uh, scrolling down just a little bit here, because it takes a minute for them to describe it. But it says, Ron was halfway between Cattermole and himself in appearance, his hair turning redder and redder as his face drained the little color it had left. What's happened to him? Splinched, said Hermione. Her fingers already busy at Ron's sleeve where blood was wettest and darkest. Harry watched horrified as she tore open Ron's shirt. He had always thought of splinching as something comical, but this. His insides crawled unpleasantly as Hermione laid bare Ron's upper arm where a great chunk of flesh was missing, scooped cleanly away as though by a knife. So, like, that shows, like, this is not... (laughs) uh, something that is comical at all like everyone kind of joked about it when they were doing their apparition tests and were practicing about it and literally like i don't think this part is really taken that 
serious because you know Hermione is so quick to think on her feet you know Harry didn't know what you know it, this goes into kind of your interesting facts you'll talk about us since it didn't even was or any of that you know Harry wasn't gonna figure that shit out if it wasn't for Hermione Ron could have literally died right here like that could have literally been it like Ron could have died right here and I think that's a big point like a lot of us just kind of breeze over for a minute because we're like you know splinching like it's not that big of a deal he didn't really face a foe doing that and he had Hermione you know help him out his girl that's been there get him back to normal but if Hermione wasn't there I gotta give my girl props like his ass could have died right there on the forest ground man so uh but yeah with that I'll take it just right from uh 262 um 272 or 272 we're going back in time man going back in time (laughs) So, uh, 272, I'll take it right where it says, uh, should I take it right where it says, I'll make some tea, or what part did, well, you said Mad-Eye, did, uh, what go, part go did you want the, me to so take, I didn't want to step on your toes yeah, there. Page 272, just take it from the top of the page. Okay, so, uh, 272, so, the first place you thought of, here he finished for his glancing around at the apparently deserted glade. He could not help remembering what had happened the last time they had apparated to the first place Hermione had thought of. And how Death Eaters had found them within minutes? Had it been legilimency? Did Voldemort or his henchmen know, even now, where Hermione had taken them? Do you reckon we should move on? Ron asked Harry. And Harry could tell by the look on Ron's face that he was thinking the same. I don't know. Ron still looked pale and clammy. He had made no attempt to sit up, and it looked as though he was too weak to do so. The prospect of moving him was daunting. Let's stay here for now, Harry said, looking relieved. Hermione sprang to her feet. Where are you going? asked Ron. If we're staying, we should put some protective enchantments around this place. Around the place, she replied. And raising her wand, she began to walk in a wide circle around Harry and Ron, murmuring incantations as she went. Harry saw little disturbances in the surrounding air. It was as if Hermione had cast a heat haze upon their clearing. Salvio Hexia! Protego Totalum! Repello Muggletum! Mufliato! You could get out of the tent, Harry. Tent? In the bag. In the... Of course, said Harry. He did not bother to grope inside it, it, it this time, but used another summoning charm. The tent emerged in a lumpy mass of canvas, ropes, and poles. Harry recognized it, partly because of the smell of casts, as the same tent in which they had slept on the night of the Quidditch World Cup. I thought this belonged to the bloke Perkins at the ministry, he asked, starting to disentangle the tent pegs. Apparently, he didn't want it back. His lumbago is so bad, said Hermione, now performing complicated figure of eight's movements with her wand. So Ron's dad said I could borrow it. Erecto! She added, pointing her wand at the mishappen canvas, which in one fluid motion rose into the air and settled, fully constructed onto the ground before Harry, out of whose startled hands a tent peg soared to land with a final thud at the end of the guy rope. Cave in a micum, Hermione finished with a skyward flourish. That's as much as I can do. At the very least, we should know they're coming. I can't guarantee it will keep out Volt. Don't say his name. Ron cut across her, his voice harsh. Harry and Hermione looked at each other. I'm sorry, Ron said, moaning a little as he raised himself to look at them. But it feels like a a jinx or something. Can we call him you-know-who, please? Dumbledore said fear of an 
name, began Harry. In case you hadn't noticed, mate, calling you-know-who by his name didn't do Dumbledore much good in the end. Ron snapped back. Just, just show you-know-who some respect, will you? Respect? Harry repeated. But Hermione shot him a warning look. Apparently, he was not to argue with Ron while the latter was in such a weakened, weakened condition. Harry and Hermione half-carried, half-dragged Ron through the entrance of the tent. The interior was exactly as Harry remembered it. A small flat complete with bathroom and tiny kitchen. He shoved aside an old armchair and lowered Ron carefully onto the lower berth of the bunk bed. Even this very short journey had turned Ron whiter still. And once they had settled him on, ma on the mattress, he closed his eyes again and did not speak for a while. I'll make some tea, said Hermione breathlessly, pulling kettle and mugs from the depths of her bed, heading toward the kitchen. Harry found the hot drink as welcome as the fire whiskey had been on the night that Mad-Eye had died. It seemed to burn away a little of the fear fluttering in his chest. After a minute or two, Ron broke in silence. What do you reckon happened to Cattermoles? With any luck, they'll have got away, said Hermione, clutching her hot mug for comfort. As long as Mr. Cattermole and his wits about him, he'll have transported Miss Cattermole by side-along apparition and they'll be fleeing the country right now with their children. That's what Harry told her to do. Blimey. I hope they escaped, said Ron, leaning back on his pillows. The team seemed to be doing him good. A little of his color had returned. I didn't get the feeling Red Cattermole was all that quick-witted, though. The way everyone was talking to me when I was him? God, I hope they made it. If they both end up in Azkaban because of... Harry looked over at Hermione and the question he had been about to ask. About whether Miss Cattermole's lack of wand would prevent her apparating alongside her husband, died in his throat. Hermione was watching Ron fret over the fate of the Cattermoles, and there was such tenderness in her expression that Harry felt almost as if he had surprised her in the act of kissing him. So have you got it? Harry asked her, partly to remind her that he was there. Got, got what? She said with a little start. What did we just go through all that for? The locket! Where's the locket? You got it? Shouted Ron, raising himself a little higher on his pillows. No one tells me anything. Blimey. You could have mentioned it. Well, we were running for our lives from Death Eaters, weren't we? Said Hermione. Here. And she pulled the locket out of the pocket of her robes and handed it to Ron. It was as large as chicken's egg. An ornate letter S inlaid with the many small green stones glinted dully in the diffused light shining through the tent canvas roof. There isn't any chance someone destroyed it since Creature had it, asked Ron hopefully. I mean, are we sure it's still a horcrux? I think so, said Hermione, taking it back from him and looking at it closely. There'd be some sign of damage if it had been magically destroyed. She passed it to Harry who turned it over in his fingers. The thing looked perfect, pristine. He remembered the mangled remains of the diary and how the stone in the horcrux ring had been cracked open when Dumbledore destroyed it. I reckon Creature's right, said Harry. We're going to have to work out how to open this thing before we can destroy it. Sudden awareness of what he was holding, of what lived behind the little golden doors, hit Harry as he spoke. Even after all the efforts to find it, he felt a violent urge to fling the locket from him. Mastering himself again, he tried to prize the locket apart with his fingers, then attempted the charm Hermione had used to open Regulus's bedroom door. Neither worked. 
He handed the locket back to Ron and Hermione, each of whom did their best but were no more successful at opening it than he had been. Can you feel it, though, Ron? Asked in a hushed voice as he held it tight in his clenched fist. What do you mean? Ron passed the horcrux to Harry. After a moment or two, Harry thought he knew what Ron meant. Was it his own blood pulsing through his veins that he could feel it? Feel? Or was it something beating inside the locket like a tiny metal heart? What are we going to do with it? Hermione asked. Keep it safe till we work out how to destroy it, Harry replied. And little though he wanted to, he hung the chain around his own neck, dropping the locket out of sight beneath his robes, where it rested against his chest beside the pouch Hagrid had given him. I think we should take it in turns to keep watch outside the tent, he added to Hermione, standing up and stretching. And we'll need to think about some food as well. You stay here, he added sharply, as Ron attempted to sit and turned a nasty shade of green. With the sneakoscope, Hermione had given Harry for his birthday set carefully upon the table to the tent, in the tent. Harry and Hermione spent the rest of the day sharing the role of lookout. However, the sneakoscope remained silent and still upon its point all day, and whether because of their protective enchantments and the muggle-repelling charms Hermione had spread around them, or because people rarely ventured this way, their patch of wooden remained deserted apart from the occasional birds and squirrels. Evening brought no change. Harry lit his wand as he swapped places with Hermione at 10 o'clock and looked out upon the deserted scene. Noting the bats fluttering high above him across the single patch of starry sky visible from the protected clearing, he felt hungry now and a little lightheaded. Hermione had not packed any food in her magical, magical bag as she had assumed that they would be returning to Grimwald's place that night so they had had nothing to eat except some wild mushrooms that Hermione had collected from amongst the nearest trees and stewed in a billy can. After a couple of mouthfuls, Ron had pushed his portion out of the way, looking queasy. Harry had only preserved so as not to hurt Hermione's feelings. The surrounding silence was broken by odd rustlings, what sounded like cracking of twigs. Harry thought that they were caused by animals rather than people, yet he kept his wand held tight and as at the ready his insides already uncomfortable due to the inadequate helping of rubbery mushrooms tingled with unease. He had the thought he would feel elated if they managed to steal back the horcrux, but somehow he did not. All he felt as he sat looking out at the darkness, of which his wand lit only a tiny part, was worry about what would happen next. It was as though he had been hurtling toward this point for weeks, months, maybe even years, but now he had come to an abrupt halt, run out of road. There were other horcruxes out there somewhere, but he did not have the faintest idea where they could be. He did not even know what all of them were. Meanwhile, he was at a loss to know how to destroy the only one that he had found, the horcrux that currently lay against the bare flesh of his chest. Curiously, it had not taken heat from his body, but lay so cold against his skin, it might just have emerged from icy water. From time to time, Harry thought or perhaps imagined that he could feel the tiny heartbeat ticking irregularly alongside his own. Nameless forebodings crept upon him as he sat there in the dark. He tried to resist them, push them away, yet they came at him relentlessly. Neither can live while the other survives. Ron and Hermione, now talking softly behind him in the tent, could walk away if they wanted to. He could not. 
And it seemed to Harry, as he sat there trying to master his own fear and exhaustion, that the horcrux against his chest was ticking away the time he had left. Stupid idea, he told himself. Don't think that. His scar was starting to prickle again. He was afraid that he was making it happen by having these thoughts, and tried to direct them into another channel. He thought of poor creature who had expected them home and had received Yaxley's instead. Would the elf keep silent or would he tell the Death Eater everything he knew? Harry wanted to believe that Creature had changed towards him in the past month, that he would be loyal now. But who knew what would happen? What if the Death Eaters tortured the elf? Sick images swarmed into Harry's head and he tried to push these away too, for there were nothing he could do for Creature. He and Hermione had already decided against trying to summon him, and what if someone from the Ministry came too? They could not count on elfish apparition being free from the same flaw that had taken Yaxley to Grimwald's place on the hem of Hermione's sleeve. Harry's scar was burning now. He thought that there was so much they did not know. Lupin had been right about magic. They had never encountered or imagined. Why hadn't Dumbledore explained more? Had he thought that there would be time? That he would live for years, for centuries perhaps? Like his old friend Nicholas Flamel? If so, he had been wrong. Snape had seen that. Snape, the sleeping snake, who had struck at the top of the tower, and Dumbledore had fallen. Fallen. Give it to me, Gregor Gregorovich. Harry's high voice was high, clear, and cold. His wand held in front of him by a long-fingered white hand. The man at whom he was pointing was suspended upside down in midair, though there were no ropes holding him. He swung there, invisibly and eerily bound. His limbs wrapped about him, his terrified face, on a level with Harry's ruddy due to the blood that had rushed to his head. He had pure white hair and a thick bushy beard, a trussed-up Father Christmas. I have it not! I have it no more! It was many years ago, stolen from me! Do not lie to Lord Voldemort, Grigorovich. He knows. He always knows. The hanging man's pupils were wide, dilated with fear. They seemed so swell, bigger and bigger, until their blackness swallowed Harry whole. And now Harry was hurrying along a dark corridor in stout little Grigorovich's wake. As he held a lantern aloft, Grigorovich burst into the room at the dark end of the dark passage, into the passage and his lantern illuminated what looked like a workshop. Wood shavings and gold gleamed in the swinging pool of light and there on the wood window ledge sat perched like a giant bird, a young man with golden hair. In the split second that the lantern's light illuminated him, Harry saw the delight upon his handsome face. The intruder shot a stunning spell from his wand and jumped neatly backward out of the window with a crow of laughter. And Harry was hurtling back out of those wide tunnel-like pupils and Grigorovich's face was stricken with terror. Who is the thief, Grigorovich? said the high, cold voice. I do not know. I, I never knew. Young man, no, please, please. A scream that went on and on and then burst a green light. Harry! He opened his eyes, painting, his forehead throbbing. He had passed out against the side of the tent had slid sideways down the canvas and was sprawled on the ground. He looked up at Hermione, whose bushy hair had obscured the tiny patch of sky visible through the dark branches high above them. Dream, he said, sitting up quickly and attempting to meet Hermione's glower with a look 
of innocence must have dozed off. Sorry. I know it's your scar. I can tell by the look on your face. You were looking in a vault. Don't say his name, came Ron's angry voice from the depths of the tent. Fine, retorted Hermione. You know who's mine then. And I didn't mean it to happen, Harry said. It was a dream. I can't control what you dream about, Hermione. If you just learn to apply a clumency. But Harry was not interested in being told off. He wanted to discuss what he had just seen. He's found Grigorovich, Hermione, and I think he's killed him. But before he killed him, he read Grigorovich's mind, and I saw... I think I'd better take over the watch if you're so tired you're falling asleep, said Hermione coldly. I can finish the watch! No, you're obviously exhausted. Go and lie down. She dropped down in the mouth of the tent looking stubborn. Angry but wishing to avoid a row, Harry ducked back inside. Ron's still pale face was poking out of the lower bunk. Harry climbed into the one above him, lay down, and looked up at the dark canvas ceiling. After several moments, Ron spoke in a voice so low that it would not carry to Hermione. Huddled in the entrance, What's you know who doing? Harry screwed up his eyes in the effort remembering every detail, then whispered into the darkness. He found Grigorovich. He had him tied up. He was torturing him. How's Grigorovich supposed to make him a new wand if he's tied up? I don't know. It's weird, isn't it? Harry closed his eyes, thinking of all he had seen and heard. The more he recalled, the less sense it made. Voldemort had said nothing about Harry's wand, nothing about twin cores, nothing about Grigorovich making a new and more powerful wand to beat Harry's. He wanted something from Grigorovich, Harry said. Eyes still closed tight. He asked him to hand it over, but Grigorovich said it had been stolen from him. And then, and then, he remembered how he as Voldemort had seemed to hurtle through Grigorovich's eyes into his memories. He read Grigorovich's mind, and I saw the young bloke perched on a windowsill. He and he fired a curse at Grigorovich and jumped out of sight. He stole it. He stole whatever you know who's after, and I th I think I've seen him somewhere. Harry wished he could have another glimpse of the laughing boy's face. The theft had happened many years ago, according to Grigorovich. Why did the young thief look familiar? The noises of surrounding woods were muffled inside the tent. All Harry could hear was Ron's breathing. After a while, Ron whispered, Couldn't you see what the thief was holding? No. It must have been something small. Harry. The wooden slats of Ron's bunk creaked as he repositioned himself in the bed. Harry. You don't reckon you know who's after something else to turn into a horcrux? I don't know, said Harry slowly. Maybe. But wouldn't it be dangerous for him to make another one? Didn't Hermione say he had pushed his soul to the limit already? Yeah. But maybe he doesn't know that. Yeah, maybe, said Harry. He had been sure that Voldemort had been looking for a way around the problem for twin cores. Sure that Voldemort sought a solution from the old wand maker. And yet, he had killed him. Apparently without asking him a single question about wand lore. What was Voldemort trying to find? Why? With the Ministry of Magic and the Wizarding World at his feet, 
Was he far away, intent on pursuit of an object that Grigorovich had once owned and which had been stolen by an unknown thief? Harry could still see the blonde-haired youth's face. It was merry, wild. There was a Fred and George's air of triumphant trickery about him. He had soared from the windowsill like a bird, and Harry had seen him before, but he could not think where. With Grigorovich dead, it was the merry-faced thief who is in danger now, and it was on him that Harry's thoughts dwelled as Ron's snores began to rumble from the lower bunk as he himself drifted slowly into his sleep once more. A lot of big stuff in that chapter, man. A lot of detail. Um, I think the biggest takeaway, of course we can kind of see, so kind of my takeaways here, I would say, is of course, you know, Ron's being a grouch. <laughs> so I guess that's one kind of part of it because he's been splitched being a tool. Um, but of course, I think the biggest takeaway from this whole chapter is, you know, Harry is having these visions again, and now he's having visions of Grigorovich. So we have those full circle moments of remember what we were talking about, Victor Crumb was talking about. And now we know, you know, Voldemort's definitely looking for something, I would say. We definitely know he's looking for something. You know, Ron's bringing up the point about maybe it's another horcrux but we know something's going on um hermione is trying to tell harry of course you know you need to keep fighting this off because of course he had that whole situation in order of the phoenix where nothing paid off correctly um but uh you know curious harry always wants to figure out what's going on and uh now we have this vision of this blonde hair boy and we know that something small we don't know what it is at the moment uh was taken away after Grigorovich was murdered from voldemort um so what are your takeaways from that chapter i'm gonna correct you there like he didn't take anything from Grigorovich for being murdered the boy took it from Grigorovich back like years ago voldemort went into his mind and saw that the thing that voldemort was looking for was taken by the thief Voldemort, okay, yeah, yeah, Voldemort Good just call. killed Grigorovich off, like just because Grigorovich couldn't help him anymore. He's, yeah, he's, he yeah. saw in his Sorry, mind what yeah. happened, and he's like, "Okay, this is all you know. Now you're worth nothing to me. So now I'm going to kill you." So it wasn't like Grigorovich yeah. was killed because something was taken from him. Something was taken from Grigorovich years ago by a blonde-haired Correct. thief that we'll learn yeah. later on. But uh, other other takeaways I have uh, for this one, I thought there was pretty cool, like. The uh, spells for protective enchantments, like the Salvio Hexia, Protego Totalum, Repello Muggleton, Muffliata. So, like, we're going to see, like, how certain sp like, spells were generated over the years for making Order of the Phoenix safe houses, what they were. Hermione ended up mm -hmm. obviously learning a few of them. And so now they have done the best that they can with the knowledge that they have to keep themselves safe in whatever areas that they're going out in. Um, also, Ron not wanting to save, uh, Ron not wanting to say Voldemort's name is a big foreshadow. Not going to get anything else further away there, but that's a big key. Yeah, uh, that's a big key happening. Um, number three, they've got the Horcrux locket, but now they're officially on their own in the woods. There's no creature to cook for them, no Fidelius charm to keep them away from the bad guys. Just Harry, Ron, and Hermione with only their skills, knowledge. And travel items. So, in the words of Tyrion Lannister, 
you're in the great game now and the great game is terrifying so they uh they're really uh, on their own at this point uh number four harry doesn't feel good that they got the horcrux because now that they did they have to find the rest which could be anywhere he doesn't even know where all the remaining he doesn't even know what all the remaining ones are plus he doesn't know how to destroy the one that he has so it's like it's a a small lived success that they got the horcrux because now it opens up a whole other can of issues of how the hell do we get rid of this one and then when we finally do where and what the hell are the rest of them uh then next one (laughs) this is just sad just harry feels bad for creature because the death eaters may be torturing him to get information on harry but they can't summon him in case someone holds on to creature while creature does the elf version of apparition so something else took away from that and then just lastly like that vision of voldemort torturing gregorovich and using legilimency to go inside Grigorovich's mind where we see the young man stealing something and then jumping out a window which is a huge foreshadow and then as we just talked about Voldemort kills Grigorovich and those are like the big takeaways I have from that main chapter so a lot of, like you said a lot of good stuff in there it's just it was a, a little a lot condensed in a little that that chapter is only you know 11 or 12 pages long but it was there's yeah. important detail of foreshadows that come up with things that they are currently going to have to struggle with and against so uh those are big ones I had there. Uh, to start into chapter 15, I'm going to go ahead and take away a couple of bullet points before I read through the end of the chapter, just because there's a few things here that we can do to kind of be efficient on, on this specific chapter, because it's more of a uh, setting the scene type of deal, right? So on page mm-hmm. 284, I thought it was really nice. This is the start of chapter 15, which is called The Goblin's Revenge. Harry buries Mad-Eye Moody's eye beneath the oldest and most resilient looking tree and marked it by gouging a small cross in the bark with his wand which was nice so now Mad-Eye Moody has some sort of like closure to his uh, character you know he's no longer helping the bad guys with his eye Uh, Harry stole it and kind of buried what was left of him who knows what happened to the rest of Moody's body but at least he gave Moody some sort of finale. They, like, there, ate nice. it, remember? Wow. Like, the inferior. Yeah, right. They ate his body. I'm <laughs> just fucking with you guys. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> I, I like... had to say it, man. I had to say it. <laughs> if you go back to our previous episodes where I assumed, like, they ate his body because I didn't look at my notes, well, I'm going to assume that's what happened to Mad-Eye. They ate his body and took his eye out and gave it to Umbridge. <laughs> I'm just fucking with you. <laughs> Same thing. Yeah, and to correct myself, you are right about that vision, by the way. I was merging the visions <laughs> when I was uh, describing them with my takeaways. <laughs> but yes, one was in the past, and then in present day, we're assuming present day, he was killed off. <laughs> so, back to you, Jane Nelly. For sure. Now, page 285, when Harry goes to like this town to try to get some like food... He comes across Dementors, and he's actually unable to cast a Patronus. And it's a little bit of a foreshadow. We learn pretty quickly why it is that he can't cast it. And with my next bullet point, I'll give you the damn answer. It's because on page 286, Hermione realizes it's because of the Horcrux. And from there, they decide they're going to now take turns wearing the Horcrux. So that way, the negative effects don't just pile up onto one person, which is pretty good. Uh, Page 288, Ron went on an empty stomach. And when it is his turn to wear the Horcrux, is downright unpleasant. <laughs> uh, it also seems that the Horcrux is affecting him more than Harry or Hermione, which is a foreshadow because then something happens later on at the very end of where we'll leave off today at the end of chapter. Uh, I'm not going to give it away. I'll just go ahead and say wait till we get wait till we get there because we're almost there. 
Uh, Then on page 288, three pages in here to chapter 15, I'm going to read the third paragraph down uh, just because this is going to be regarding potential Horcrux locations and where they start talking about it. So anyways, uh, we go to, as Dumbledore told Harry, he believed Voldemort had hidden the Horcruxes in places that were important to him. They kept reciting in a sort of dreary litany those locations they knew that Voldemort had lived or visited. The orphanage, where he had been born, Hogwarts, where he had been educated, Borgen and Burks, where he had worked for after completing school, then Albania, where after he spent years of exile, these formed the basis of their speculation. Then Ron kind of gets a little sarcastic. Yeah, let's go to Albania. Shouldn't take more than an afternoon to search an entire country. And there can't be anything there. He'd already made five of his horcruxes before he went into exile, and Dumbledore was certain the snake was the sixth, said Hermione. We know the snake's not in Albania. It's usually with Vol. Didn't I ask you to stop saying that? Fine. The snake is usually with you-know-who. Happy? Not particularly. <laughs> well, I can't see him hiding anything in Borgen and Burke, said Harry, who had made this point many times before, but said it again simply to break the nasty silence. Borgen and Burke were experts at dark objects and would have recognized a horcrux straight away. And Ron yawned pointedly, repressing a strong urge to throw something at him. Harry plowed on. I still reckon he might have hidden something at Hogwarts. Which, you know, foreshadow here. But Hermione sighed. But Dumbledore would have found it, Harry. And Harry repeated the argument he kept bringing out in favor of his theory. Dumbledore said in front of me on multiple occasions that he never assumed that he knew all of Hogwarts' secrets. I'm telling you, if there was one place... Vo- Oi! Okay, you know who then, Harry shouted, goaded past endurance. If there was one place that was really important to you know who, it was Hogwarts. Oh, come off it, scuffed Ron. His school? Yeah, his school. It was his first real home, the place that meant he was special. It meant everything to him. And even after he left, this is you know who we're talking about, right? Not you, inquired Ron. He was tugging at the chain of the horcrux around his neck, and Harry was visited by a desire to seize it and throttle him. You told us that you know who asked Dumbledore to give him a job after he left, said Hermione. That's right, said Harry. And Dumbledore thought he only wanted to come back to try and find something, probably another founder's object to make it into another horcrux. Yeah, said Harry, but he didn't get the job, did he, said Hermione, so he never got the chance to find a founder's object there and hide it in the school. Okay, then, said Harry, defeated. Forget Hogwarts. Bad idea, guys. Anyways, without any other leads, they traveled into London, hidden beneath the invisibly cloak, searching for the orphanage in which Voldemort had been raised. And Hermione stole into a library and discovered from their records that the place they had demolished many years before, they visited the site and found a tower block of offices. Well, we could try digging in the foundations, Hermione suggested half-heartedly. He wouldn't have hidden a horcrux here, Harry said. He had known it all along. The orphanage had been the place Voldemort had been determined to escape. He would never have hidden a part of his soul there. Dumbledore had shown Harry that Voldemort sought grandeur and mystique in his hiding places. This dismal great corner of London was as far removed as you can imagine from Hogwarts, or the Ministry, or a building like Gringotts, the Wizarding Bank, with its golden doors and marbled floors. Even without any new ideas, they continued to move through the countryside, pitching the tent in different places each night for security. And every morning they made sure that they had removed all clues to their presence, and they set off to find another lonely and secluded spot, traveling by apparition to more woods, to the shadowy crevices of cliffs, the purple moors, gorse-covered mountainsides, and once a sheltered and pebbly cove. Every twelve hours or so, they passed the horcrux between them, as though they were playing some perverse slow-motion game of pass a parcel, where they dreaded the music stopping, for their reward was twelve hours of increased fear and anxiety. 
Harry's scar kept prickling. It happened most often, he noticed, when he was wearing the Horcrux, and sometimes he could not help himself from reacting to the pain. What? What did you see? demanded Ron whenever he noticed Harry wince. Just a face, Harry muttered every time. The same face the thief who stole from Grigorovich. And Ron would turn away, making no effort to hide his disappointment, and Harry knew that Ron was hoping to hear news of his family or the rest of the Order of Phoenix, but after all, he, Harry, was not a television aerial. He could not only see what Voldemort was thinking at the time, not tune into whatever took his fancy. Apparently, Voldemort was dwelling endlessly on the unknown youth with the gleeful face whose name and whereabouts Harry felt sure Voldemort knew no better than he did. As Harry's scar continued to burn, and the merry blonde hair boy swam tantalizing in his memory, he learned to suppress any sign of pain or discomfort because the other two showed nothing but impatience at the mention of this thief. He cannot entirely blame them when they were so desperate for a lead on the Horcruxes. As the day stretched into weeks, Harry began to suspect Ron and Hermione were having conversations without him and about him. Several times they stopped talking abruptly when Harry entered the tent, and twice he came accidentally upon them huddled a little distance away, heads together, talking fast. Both times they fell silent when they realized he was approaching them and hastened to appear busy collecting wood or water. And Harry could not help wondering whether they had only agreed to come on what now felt like a pointless rambling journey because they thought he had some secret plan that they would learn in due course. Ron was making no effort to hide his bad mood, and Harry was starting to fear that Hermione, too, was disappointed by his poor leadership. In desperation, he tried to further think of Horcrux locations, but the only one that continued to occur to him was Hogwarts, and as neither of the others thought that this was likely at all, he stopped suggesting it. So now I'm going to go ahead and take from the very bottom of this page all the way through, through the rest of the chapter. Uh, Your mother can't produce food out of thin air, said Hermione. No one can. Food is the first of the five principal exceptions to Gamp's law of elemental transfigure. Oh, speak English, can't you? said Ron prizing a fishbone out from his teeth. It's impossible to make good food out of nothing. You can summon it if you know where it is. You can transform it. You can increase the quantity if you've already got some. Well, don't bother increasing this. It's disgusting, said Ron. Harry caught the fish and I did my best with it. I notice I'm always the one who ends up sorting out the food because I'm a girl, I suppose. No, it's because you're supposed to be the best at magic, shot bat Ron. Hermione jumped up bits of roast pike slid off her tin plate onto the floor. Well, you can do the cooking tomorrow, Ron. You can find the ingredients and try and charm them to something worth eating. And I'll sit here and pull faces and moan, and you can see how you... Shut up, said Harry, leaping to his feet, holding up both hands. Shut up now. Hermione looked outraged. How can you side with him? He hardly ever does it. Hermione, be quiet. I can hear someone. He was listening hard, his hands still raised, warning them not to talk. Then over the rushing gush of the darker beside them, he heard voices again. He looked around at the sneakoscope, but it was not moving. You cast a muffliato charm over us, right? He whispered to Hermione. I did everything, she whispered back. Muffliato, muggle repelling, and disillusionment charms, all of it. They shouldn't be able to hear or see us, whoever they are. Heavy scuffing and scraping noises, plus the sound of a dislodged stones and twigs told him that several people were clambering down the steep wooden slope that descended to the narrow bank where they had pitched the tent. They drew their wands, waiting. The enchantments they had cast around themselves ought to be sufficient in the near total darkness to shield them from notice of muggles and normal witches and wizards. If these were Death Eaters, then perhaps their defenses were about to be tested by dark magic for the first time. The voices became louder but no more intelligible as the group of men reached the bank. Harry estimated that the owners were fewer than 20 feet away, but the Cascading River made it impossible to tell for sure. 
Hermione snatched up the beaded bag and started to rummage after a moment. She drew out three extendable ears and threw one to each Harry and Ron, who hastily inserted the ends of the flesh-colored strings into their ears and fed the other ends out to the tent entrance. Within seconds, Harry heard a weary male voice. There ought to be a few salmon in here, or do you reckon it's too early in the season? Accio salmon! There were several distinct splashes and then the slapping sounds of fish against flesh. Somebody grunted appreciatively. Harry pressed the extendable ear deeper into his own. Over the murmur of the river, he could make out more voices, but they were not speaking English or any human language that he had ever heard. It was a rough and unmelodious tongue, a string of rattling, guttural noises, and there seemed to be two speakers, one with a slightly lower and slower voice than the other. A fire danced in the light on the other side of the canvas. Large shadows passed between tent and flames. The delicious smell of baking salmon wafted tantalizingly in their direction. Then... The clinkering of cutlery on plates, and the first man spoke again. Here, Griphook, Gornuck, goblins! Hermione mouthed at Harry, who nodded. Thank you, said the goblins together in English. So, you three have been on the run how long? Asked a new, mellow, and pleasant voice. It sounded vaguely familiar to Harry, who pictured a round-bellied, cheerful-faced man. Six weeks, seven, I forget, said the tired man. Met up with Griphook in the first couple of days, and joined forces with Gornuck not long after. Nice to have a bit of company. There was a pause while knives scraped the plates and tin mugs were picked and replaced on the ground. "'What made you leave, Ted?' continued the man. "'Knew they were coming for me,' replied the mellow-voiced Ted, and Harry suddenly knew who he was. It was Tonks's father. "'Heard Death Eaters run the area last week, and I decided I'd better run for it. Refused to register as a muggle-born on principle, see? So I knew it was a matter of time. Knew I'd have to leave in the end. My wife should be okay. She's pure blood. And then I met Dean here. What, a few days ago, son?' Yeah, said another voice, and Harry, Ron, and Hermione stared at each other, silent, but beside themselves with excitement, sure that they recognized the voice of Dean Thomas, their fellow Gryffindor. Muggleborn, eh? asked the first man. I'm not sure, said Dean. My dad left my mom when I was a kid. I've got no proof he was a wizard, though. There was silence for a while, except for the sounds of munching, and then Ted spoke again. Gotta say, Dirk, I'm surprised to run into you. Uh, pleased, but surprised. Word was he'd been caught. I was, said Dirk. I was halfway to ask a man when I made a break for it. Stunned dollish and nicked his broom. It was easier than you think. I don't reckon he's quite right at the moment. Might be confounded. If so, I'd like to shake the hand of the witcher wizard who did it. Probably save my life. There was another pause in which a fire crackled and the river rushed on. Then Ted said, Where do you two fit in? I uh, had the impression that the goblins were for you-know-who on the whole. You had a false impression, said the higher voice of the goblins. We take no sides. This is a wizard's war. How come you're in hiding, then? I deemed it prudent, said the deeper-voiced goblin, having refused what I considered an impertinent request. I could see that my personal safety was in jeopardy. What did they ask you to do, asked Ted. Duties ill-befitting the dignity of my race, repeated the goblin, his voice rougher and less human as he said it. I am not a house elf. What about you, Griphook? Similar reason, said the higher-voiced goblin. Gringotts is no longer under the sole control of my race. I recognize no wizarding master. He added something under his breath in gobbledygook, and Gornick laughed. What's the joke, asked Dean? He said, replied Dirk, that there are things wizards don't recognize either. There was a short pause. I don't get it, said Dean. I had my small revenge before I left, said Griphook in English. Good man, goblin, I should say, amended Ted hastily. Didn't manage to lock a Death Eater up in one of the high security vaults, I suppose. Well, if I had... The sword would not have helped him break out, replied Griphook, and Gornuck laughed again, and even Dirk gave a dry chuckle. Dean and I are still missing something here, said Ted. So is Severus Snape, though he does not know it, said Griphook. 
and the two goblins roared with malicious laughter. Inside the tent, Harry's breathing was shallow with excitement. He and Hermione stared at each other, listening as hard as they could. Didn't you hear about that, Ted? asked Dirk. About the kid who tried to steal Gryffindor's sword out of Snape's office at Hogwarts? An electric current seemed to course through Harry, jangling his every nerve as he stood rooted to the spot. Never heard a word, said Ted. Not in the prophet, was it? Hardly, chortled Dirk. Griphook here told me. Heard about it from Bill Weasley, who works for the bank. One of the kids who tried to take the sword was Bill's younger sister. Harry glanced towards Hermione and Ron, both of whom were clutching extendable ears as tightly as lifelines. She and a couple friends got into Snape's office and smashed open the glass case where he was apparently keeping the sword. Snape caught them as they were trying to smuggle it down the staircase. Ah, God bless him, said Ted. What did they think, that they'd be able to use the sword on you-know-who? Or on Snape himself? Well, whatever they thought they were going to do with it, Snape decided the sword wasn't safe where it was, said Dirk. A couple days later, once he'd gotten the say-so from you-know-who, I imagine, he set it down to London to keep in Gringotts instead. Then the goblins started to laugh again. Still not seeing the joke, said Ted. It's a fake, rasped Griphook. The Sword of Gryffindor? Oh, yes. It is a copy. An excellent copy, it is true. But it was wizard-made. The original was forged centuries ago by goblins and had certain properties only goblin-made armor possesses. Wherever the genuine Sword of Gryffindor is, it is not in a vault at Green God's Bank. I see, said Ted, and I take it you didn't bother telling the Death Eaters this? I saw no reason to trouble them with the information, said Griffup smugly, and now Ted and Dean joined in on Gornuck and Dirk's laughter. Inside the tent, Harry closed his eyes, willing someone to ask the question he needed answered. After a minute, Dean obliged. He was, Harry remembered with a jolt, an ex-boyfriend of Ginny's too. So what happened to Ginny and the others? The ones who tried to steal it? Oh, they were punished, and cruelly, said Griffook indifferently. They're okay, though, asked Ted quickly. I mean, the Weasleys don't need any more of their kids injured, do they? They suffered no serious injury as far as I'm aware, said Griphook. Lucky for them. With Snape's track record, I suppose we should just be glad that they're still alive. You believe that story, then, do you, Ted? asked Dirk. You believe Snape killed Dumbledore? Of course I do, said Ted. You're not going to sit there and tell me you think Potter had anything to do with it. Hard to know what to believe these days, muttered Dirk. I know Harry Potter, said Dean, and I reckon he's the real thing. The chosen one, or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, there's a lot that would like to believe that, son, said Dirk. Me included, but where is he? Run for it by the looks of things. You think if he knew anything, we don't, or had any special thing going for him, he'd be out there fighting, rallying resistance instead of hiding. And you know, the prophet made a pretty good case against him. The prophet, scoffed Ted. You deserve to be lied to if you're still reading that muck. Dirk, if you want the facts, try the quibbler. And there was a sudden explosion of choking and retching, plus a good deal of thumping by the sound of it. Dirk had swallowed a fishbone and at last sputtered. The quibbler? That lunatic rag of Zeno love goods? It's not so lunatic these days, said Ted. You want to give it a look? Zeno is printing all the stuff the prophet's ignoring, not to mention, not a single mention of a crumpled horn snorkack in the last issue. How long they'll let him get away with it, mine, I don't know. But Zeno says, front page of every issue, that any wizard who's against you-know-who ought to make helping Harry Potter their number one priority. It's hard to help a boy who's vanished off the face of the earth, said Dirk. Listen, the fact that they haven't caught him yet is one hell of an achievement, said Ted. I'd take tips from him gladly. It's what we're trying to do. Stay free, isn't it? Yeah, well, you got a point there, said Dirk heavily. With the whole of the ministry and all of their informers looking for him... I'd expect him to be caught by now. Mind who's to say they haven't already caught and killed him without publicizing it. 
don't say that, Dirk, murmured Ted. And there was a long pause filled with more clattering of knives and forks. When they spoke again, it was discussed whether they ought to sleep on the bank or retreat back up to the wooded slope. Deciding that the trees would give better cover, they exchanged their fire, then clambered up the incline, their voices fading away. Harry, Ron, and Hermione reeled in the extendable ears. Harry found the need to remain silent increasingly difficult the longer they'd eavesdropped, and now find himself unable to say more than, Ginny, the sword. I know, said Hermione. She lunged for the tiny beaded bag, this time sinking her arm in right up to the armpit. Here we are, she said between gritted teeth, and she pulled something heavy that was evidently in the depths of the bag. Slowly, an edge of an ornate picture, it came, the frame came into sight. Harry hurried up to help her. As they looked at the empty portrait of Phineas Nagellus free of Hermione's bag, she kept her wand pointed at it, ready to cast a spell at any moment. If somebody swapped the real sword for the fake while I was in Dumbledore's office, she panted, as they propped the painting against the side of the tent, Phineas Nagellus would have seen it happen. He hangs right beside the case. Unless he was asleep, said Harry, but he still held his breath as Hermione knelt down in front of the empty canvas, her wand directed at its center, cleared her throat, and said, Uh, Phineas? Phineas Nagellus? Nothing happened. Phineas Nagellus, said Hermione again. Professor Black, can we talk to you, please? Please always helps, said a cold, snide voice. And Phineas Nagellus slid into his portrait. And at once, Hermione cried, Obscuro! And a black blindfold, blindfold appeared over Phineas Nagellus's clever, dark eyes, causing him to bump into the frame and shriek with pain. What? How dare? What are you? I'm very sorry, Professor Black, but it's a necessary precaution. Remove this follow edition at once! Remove it, I say. You are ruining a great work of art. Where am I? What's going on? Never mind where we are, said Harry, and Phineas Nagellus froze, abandoning his attempts to peel off the painted blindfold. Can that possibly be the voice of the elusive Mr. Potter? Maybe, said Harry, knowing that this would keep Phineas Nagellus' interest. We've got a couple questions to ask you about the Sword of Gryffindor. Ah, yes. Phineas Nagellus said, now turning his head this way and that, in an effort to catch sight of Harry. Yes, that silly girl acted most unwisely there. Shut up about my sister, said Ron roughly, and Phineas Nagellus raised his supercilious eyebrows. Who else is here, he asked, turning his head from side to side. Your tone displeases me. The girl and her friends were foolhardy in the extreme, thieving from the headmaster. They weren't thieving, said Harry. That sword isn't Snape's. It belongs to Professor Snape's school, said Phineas Nagellus. Exactly what claim did the Weasley girl have upon it? She deserved her punishment, as did the idiot Longbottom, and the Lovegood oddity. Neville is not an idiot, and Luna is not an oddity, said Hermione. Where am I? repeated Phineas Nagellus, starting to wrestle the blindfold again. Where have you brought me? Why have you removed me from my house of my forebears? Never mind that. How did Snape punish Ginny, Neville, and Luna? asked Harry urgently. Professor Snape sent them into the Forbidden Forest to do some work for the oaf Hagrid. Hagrid is non-oaf, said Hermione shrilly. And Snape might have thought that was a punishment, said Harry, but Ginny, Neville, and Luna probably had a good laugh with Hagrid. The Forbidden Forest? They, play, they face plenty worse than the Forbidden Forest. Big deal. He felt relieved. He had been imagining horrors. The Cruciatus Curse, at the least. What we really need to know, Professor Black, is whether anyone else has uh, taken out the sword at all. Maybe it's been taken away for cleaning or something. Phineas Nagellus paused again in his struggles to free his eyes and sniggered. Muggleborns, he said. Goblin-made armor does not require cleaning, simple girl. Goblin silver repels mundane dirt, imbibing only that which strengthens it. Don't call Hermione simple, said Harry. 
I grow weary of contradiction, said Phineas Nagelis. Perhaps it is time for me to return to the headmaster's office. Still blindfolded, he began groping at the side of his frame, trying to feel his way out of the picture and back into the one at Hogwarts. Harry had a sudden inspiration. Dumbledore! Can you bring us Dumbledore? I beg your pardon, asked Phineas Nagelis. Professor Dumbledore's portrait. Couldn't you bring him along here into yours? Phineas Nagelis turned to face Harry, with, turned his face in the direction of Harry's voice. Evidently, it is not only Muggleborns who are ignorant, Potter. The portraits of Hogwarts may commune with each other, but they cannot travel outside the castle except to visit a painting of themselves hanging elsewhere. Dumbledore cannot come here with me, and after the treatment I have received at your hands, I can assure you that I shall not make—I shall not be remaking a return visit. Slightly crestfallen, Harry watched Phineas redouble his attempts to leave his frame. Professor Black, said Hermione, couldn't you just tell us, please, when was the last time the sword was taken out of its case before Ginny took it out? Phineas snorted impatiently. I believe the last time I saw the Gryffindor sword leave its case was when Professor Dumbledore used it to break open a ring. Hermione ripped it wide to look at Harry. Neither of them dared say any more in front of Phineas Nagellus, who had at last managed to locate the exit. Well, good night to you, he said a little waspishly as he began to move out of sight again. Only the edge of his hat brim remained in view when Harry gave a sudden shout. Wait, have you told Snape you saw this? Phineas Nagellus stuck his blindfolded head back into the picture. Professor Snape has more important things on his mind than the many eccentricities of Albus Dumbledore. Goodbye, Potter. And with that, he vanished completely, leaving behind nothing but his murky backdrop. Harry! Hermione cried. I know! Harry shouted, unable to contain himself. He punched the air. It was more than he dared hope for. He showed up and down the tent, feeling that he could have run a mile. He didn't even feel hungry anymore. Hermione was squashing Nigellus' portrait back into the beaded bag. When she had fastened the clasp, she threw the bag aside and raised a shining face to Harry. The sword can destroy horcruxes. Goblin-made blades imbibe only that which strengthens them. Harry, that sword's impregnated with basilisk venom. And Dumbledore didn't give it to me because he still needed it. He wanted to use it on the locket. And he must have realized they wouldn't have let you have it if he put it in his will. So he made a copy and put the fake in the glass case and left the real one where? They gazed at each other. Harry felt that the answer was dangling and visible in the air above them, tantalizingly close. Why hadn't Dumbledore told him? Or had he, in fact, told Harry, but Harry had not realized it at the time? Think, whispered Harry, think. Where would he have left it? Not at Hogwarts, said Harry, resuming his pacing. Somewhere in Hogsmeade, suggested Hermione. The Shrieking Shack, said Harry. No one ever goes in there. But Snape knows how to get it. Wouldn't that be a bit risky? Dumbledore trusted Snape, Harry reminded her. But not enough to tell him that he had swapped swords, said Hermione. Yeah, you're right. And said Harry, and he felt even more cheered at the thought that Dumbledore had had some reservations, however faint, about Snape's trustworthiness. So, would he have hidden the sword well away from Hogsmeade then? What do you reckon, Ron? Ron? Harry looked around. For one, familiar, for one bewildered moment, he thought that Ron had left the tent, but then realized that Ron was lying in the shadow of a lower bunk looking stony. Oh, remembered me, have you? Ron snorted as he stared up at the underside of the upper bunk. You two carry on. Don't let me spoil your fun. Perplexed, Harry looked, in, looked to Hermione for help, but she shook her head apparently as nonplussed as he was. What's the problem? asked Harry. Problem? There's no problem, said Ron, still refusing to look at Harry. Not according to you, anyway. There were several plunks on the canvas over their head. It had started to rain. Well, obviously you've got a problem, said Harry. Spit it out, will you? Ron swung his legs off the bed and sat up. He looked mean, unlike himself. All right. I'll spit it out. 
But don't expect me to skip up and down the tent just because there's some other damn thing we've got to find. Just add it to the list of stuff you don't know. I don't know, repeated Harry. I don't know? Plunk, plunk, plunk. The rain was falling harder and heavier. It patterned on the leaf-strung bank all around them and into the river, chattering through the dark. Dread doused Harry's jubilation. Ron was saying exactly what he suspected and feared him to be thinking. It's not like I'm having the time of my life here, said Ron. You know, with my arm mangled and nothing to eat and freezing my backside off every night, I just hoped, you know, after we'd been running around for a few weeks, we'd have achieved something. Ron, Hermione said Hermione, but in such a quiet voice that Ron could pretend to not have heard it over the loud tattoo the rain was now beating on the tent. I thought you knew what you signed up for, said Harry. Yeah, I thought I did too. So what part of this isn't living up to your expectations, asked Harry, anger coming as defense now. Did you think we'd be staying in five-star hotels, finding a horcrux every other day? Did you reckon you'd be back to mommy by Christmas? We thought you knew what you were doing, shouted Ron, standing up his words pierced Harry like scalding knives. We thought Dumbledore had told you what to do. We thought you had a real plan. Ron, said Hermione, this time clearly audible over the rain thundering on the tent roof, but again he ignored her. Well, sorry to let you down, said Harry, his voice quite calm even though he felt hollow, inadequate. I've been straight with you from the start. I told you everything Dumbledore told me, and in case you haven't noticed, we found one Horcrux. Yeah, and we're about as near getting rid of it as we are to finding the rest of them. Nowhere effing near, in other words. Take off the locket, Ron, Hermione said, her voice unusually high. Please, take it off. You wouldn't be talking like this if you hadn't been wearing it all day. Yeah, he would, said Harry, who did not want excuses made for Ron. Do you think I haven't noticed the two be whispering behind my back? Do you think I didn't guess you were thinking this stuff? Harry, we weren't... Don't lie, Ron hurled at her. You said it too. You said you were disappointed. You said you thought he had a bit more to go on than... I didn't say it like that. Harry, I didn't, she cried. And the rain was pounding the tent. Tears were pouring down Hermione's face, and the excitement of a few minutes ago vanished as if it had never been. A short-lived firework that had flared and died, leaving everything dark, wet, and cold. The story of Gryffindor was hidden. They knew not where, and they were three teenagers in the tent whose only achievement was not yet to be dead. So why are you still here? Harry asked Ron. Search me, said Ron. Go home then, said Harry. Yeah, maybe I will, shouted Ron. He took several steps towards Harry, who did not back away. Didn't you hear what they said about my sister? But you don't give a rat's fart, do you? It's only the Forbidden Forest. Harry, I've faced worse. Potter doesn't care what happens to her in here. Well, I do, alright? Giant spiders and mental stuff. I was only saying she was with the others. They were with Hagrid. Yeah, I get it. You don't care. And what about what about that bit, the rest of my family? The Weasleys don't need another kid injured. Did you hear that? Yeah, I... Not bothered by what it meant, though. Run, said Hermione, forcing away between them. I don't think it means anything new has happened. Anything we don't already know. Think, Ron. Bill's already scarred. Plenty of people must have seen George has lost an ear by now. And you're supposed to be on your deathbed with Spattergroyd. I'm sure that's all you meant. Oh, you're sure, are you? Right. Well, then I won't bother myself anymore about them. It's all right for you two, isn't it, with your parents safely out of the way? My parents are dead, bellowed Harry, and mine could be going the same way, yelled Ron. Then go, roared Harry. Go back to them. Pretend you've got over your spattergroit, and Mummy will be able to feed you up in... Ron made a sudden movement. Harry reacted, but before either one was clear of the owner's pocket, Hermione raised her own. Protego, she shouted, and an invisible shield expanded between her and Harry on one side, and Ron on the other. All of them forced backwards a few steps by the strength of the spell, and Harry and Ron glared from either side of the transparent barrier as though they were seeing each other clearly for the first time. Harry felt a corrosive hatred towards Ron. Something had broken between them. 
Leave the Horcrux, Harry said. Ron wrenched the chain from over his head and cast the locket into a nearby chair. He turned to Hermione. What are you doing? What do you mean? Are you staying, or what? I... She looked anguished. Y yes, I'm staying, Ron. We said we'd go with Harry. We said we'd help. I get it. You choose him. Ron, no, please, come back, come back. She was impeded by her own shield charm. By the time she had removed it, he had already stormed into the night. Harry stood quiet, still and silent, listening to her sobbing and calling Ron's name amongst the trees. After a few minutes, she returned, her sopping hair plastered to her face. He's g gone, disapparated. She threw herself into a chair, curled up and started to cry. Harry felt dazed. He stooped, picked up the horcrux, and placed it around his own neck. He dragged the blankets off Ron's bunk and threw them over Hermione. Then he climbed into his own bed and stared up at the dark canvas roof, listening to the pounding of the rain. And that takes it through chapter 15. So with me just kind of giving that big long chapter out, I'll go ahead and give Chase the chance to give us his takeaways on that chapter before I give my own and we'll carry on from there. Yeah, man, uh, a lot of stuff there, a lot of detail. Carry on our wayward son. Um, we got, so the first big takeaway there is we're learning that the sword of Gryffindor that we thought, you know, uh, the ministry had taken away and not allowed Harry to get was real, but indeed it's a fake. Uh, so we know the real one's out there somewhere. And the biggest takeaway out of this entire chapter is that, you know, Hermione mentions after putting two and two together with all the stuff, it's impregnated with basculus venom. And another full circle moment. Uh, now we're finding out why that ring had, you know, uh, was basically like smashed in half. I guess I would say it had that cut on it. It's because Dumbledore used the sword on it to destroy the ring. So um, we're finding out all these major full circle moments about horcruxes like finally we're getting into detail here on how we have at least some sort of an idea how we can destroy these things at the same time though um, of course that was kind of a full circle moment with ted talks and dean thomas comes along remembering you know thinking about jenny i <laughs> got dirty jenny there you know tempting tempting harry because harry was a uh, a little bit sad he doesn't have no girlfriend anymore because he's running around like ronald said without a plan <laughs> got no damn plan <laughs> doesn't know what's going on but it's true it adds to the whole point exactly what ron was saying of course a lot of this you know the more and more he's wearing that horcrux it's kind of like truth serum when you're drunk if you add some like emotion built up or something he just lets it out man and it is true though like what sort of plan did he have like Dumbledore really didn't leave him with a plan like he had some information on it but there's been no clear-cut plan on how to get rid of these things um and, you know Ron was wearing that horcrux all day and just whether it was Ron or not <laughs> like just had it and uh you know Hermione like tries to separate them all together with that Protego spell the shield charm that separates them all and it's kind of like leads a little bit to uh you know she's kind of unfortunately the her own culprit there because she blocks herself from ron so generally you know that is the person she feels like i feel like she thinks she should be with 
and uh, she tries to even go after him, but he's already gone by that point because she's been blocked by her own Protego charm, and he's disapparated off. And I think a big point in this book, too, is remember uh, how you were talking about the, you know, even back in the last chapter with the Mufliato spell and the concealment charms, that's the big moment there is now that Ron's gone, like it settles in like Ron's actually gone because he can't really just come back. Like this, this place is concealed, so you can't just find it on your own. So those were the biggest uh, takeaways. A lot of big stuff there, um, but those were like the big takeaways I found from that chapter. What about you? For me, I have like five that I put down. One of them is kind of the same exact one you talked about, how we learned the sort of Gryffindor in Snape's office that he sent to Gringotts for safekeeping is a fake. Uh, now, this other part, I think it's pretty big too because it comes up, it's a foreshadow for later on, but apparently the Quibbler has been printing all the facts and Zeno feels so good is publishing all the stuff the Daily Prophet has been keeping quiet. And that's going to be a foreshadow because you know, that's going to come up later on as we go through the story. Uh, another thing I thought was kind of cool uh, it was nice to see that the usual loyal members of the DA have still been quote unquote fighting the power <laughs> at Hogwarts. Uh, you know, and Finney Sagella said it was Ginny, Luna, and Neville who attempted to seal the sword. So it's good to see that they're still, uh, you know, fighting the power. And then we uh, the big takeaway from that, honestly, is the sword can destroy Horcruxes. So that's you know now we've got an idea of at least how we can get these Horcruxes gone if we can find it. Uh, but then the last part of it is Ron blows up and leaves Harry and Hermione. And in the words of Timon from The Lion King, our trio's down to two. So that's, <laughs> That was dead on. Like, that was awesome. So that's what I had for that chapter. So to kind of get us on into chapter 16, this was actually one I put a couple bullet points in. So do you mind if I go over the couple bullet points before I turn it over to you to fill out the chapter? Yeah, sounds good, man. Chapter 15, Godric's Hollow. Right, and then we'll go. I think it's 16. chapter sixteen. It's chapter sixteen, Godric's Hollow. Godric's Hollow is chapter sixteen. Yeah, sixteen. My bad. Oh, good. <laughs> my, uh, <laughs> I'm a little bit ahead of you. I wrote down fifteen because I was so stoked to hear you give us <laughs> tell us all about Bethilda. That was writing those books, man. No worries. <laughs> chapter so- sixteen. I stand corrected there. We're even farther than I thought we were. Indeed. Good stuff. Yeah, go ahead and take those bullet points. For sure. So on page 312, Hermione tries to stall leaving the area in case Ron decided to return. Because like you said, like as soon as they go, that's it. Like He can't really find them again. So she tries to like have every reason to keep stalling. She stalled for over an hour, like repacked her beaded bag three times. Like kept staying there. Like So mm-hmm. it was nice because like, you know, both, even Harry said he was kind of hoping that uh, Ron would turn back up. But alas, it wasn't meant to be. And they have to leave the area without him. So uh, no more Ron for now. And, and page 313, I even kind of detailed it. Page 313, poor Hermione would cry at night missing Ron. What a sad, sad thing. Uh, then later on, like later further down on page 313, Hermione and Harry, they attempt to think of where Dumbledore may have hidden the sword. But to Harry's knowledge, no such hiding place was ever mentioned to him by Dumbledore. There's a reason why, and that's going to be found out actually way later, kind of like towards the end of this book. But just keep that in mind if that's something that does play a big role. And then uh, just one more paragraph, and I'm going to turn over to Chase to kind of take us through the rest of the chapter. On page 314, I'm going to read the second paragraph through the first paragraph on 315. So 
Uh, they were spending many evenings in near silence, and Hermione took to bringing out Phineas Nagellus's portrait and propping it up in a chair, as though he might fill part of the gaping hole left by Ron's departure. Despite his previous assertion that he would never visit them again, Phineas Nagellus did not seem able to resist the chance to find out more about what Harry was up to, and consented to reappear blindfolded every few days or so. Harry was even glad to see him because the company, albeit of a snide and taunting kind, they relished any news about what was happening at Hogwarts, though Phineas Nagellus was not an ideal informer. He venerated Snape, since he was a first Slytherin headmaster, since Phineas Nagellus himself had controlled the school, so they had to be careful not to criticize or ask impertinent questions about Snape or Phineas Nagellus would instantly leave the painting. However, he did let drop certain snippets. Snape seemed to be facing a constant low level of mutiny from a hard core of students. Ginny had been banned from going to Hogsmeade. Snape had reinstated Umbridge's old decree forbidding gatherings of three or more students in any unofficial student societies. So from all these things, Harry deduced that Ginny, probably Neville and Luna along with her, had been doing their best to continue Dumbledore's army. This scant news made Harry want to see Ginny so badly it felt like a stomachache, but it also made him think of Ron again, and of Dumbledore, and of Hogwarts itself, which he missed nearly as much as his ex-girlfriend. Indeed, as Phineas Nagellus talked about Snape's crackdown, Harry experienced a split second of madness when he imagined simply going back to the school to join the destabilization of Snape's regime. Being fed, having a soft bed, and other people being in charge seemed like the most wonderful prospect in the world at that moment. But then, reality comes crashing back to him. He remembers that he's undesirable number one, and there's a 10,000 galleon price on his head. And that to walk into Hogwarts these days was just as dangerous as walking into the Ministry of Magic. Indeed, Phineas Nagellus inadvertently emphasized this fact by slipping in leading questions about Harry and Hermione's whereabouts. And Hermione shoved him back inside the beaded bag every time he did this and Phineas Nagellus invariably refused to reappear for several days after these unceremonious goodbyes. So I wanted to read that chapter there because they're starting to use Phineas Nagellus' portrait to their advantage, giving more information about what's going on in the magical world and the Hogwarts itself. And it's funny, like Harry, Harry almost risked it all just to go back to say fuck you to Snape and undermine his regime. He's like, I don't want to go back. And then he's like, oh wait, I'm actually the most, most wanted man in the world right now, so maybe <laughs> I shouldn't do that. So with that, man, I'll go ahead and turn it over to you to go ahead and read the last paragraph on page 315 and take it through the end of the chapter. Yeah, man. Uh, so this is the last paragraph on 315. Uh, they had already spotted Christmas trees twinkling from several sitting room windows before there came an evening when Harry resolved to suggest again what seemed to him the only unexplored avenue left to them. They had just eaten an unusually good meal, Hermione had been to, the, to a supermarket under the invisibility cloak, scrupulously dropping the money into an open till as she left, and Harry thought that she might be persuadable than usual on a stomach full of spaghetti, bolognese, and tin pears. He had also had the foresight to suggest that they take a few hours break from wearing the horcrux, which was hanging over the end of the bunk beside him. Hermione? Hmm. She was curled up in one of the sagging armchairs with the tails of Beetle and the Bard. He could not imagine how much more she could get out of the book, which was not, after all, very long, but evidently she was still deciphering something in it, because Spellman's syllabary lay open on the arm of the chair. Harry cleared his throat. He felt exactly as he had done on the occasion, several years previously, when he had had 
and asked Professor McGonagall whether he could go into Hogsmeade, despite the fact that he had not persuaded the Dursleys to sign his permission slip. Hermione, I've been thinking, and... Harry, could you help me with something? Apparently, she had not been listening to him. She leaned forward and held out the tails of Beetle and the Bard. Look at that symbol, she said, pointing at the top of the page. Above what Harry assumed was the title of the story, being unable to read runes, he could not be sure. There was a picture of what looked like a triangular eye, its pupil crossed with a vertical line. I never took ancient ruins, Hermione. I know that, but it isn't a rune, and it's not a syllabary either. All along I thought it was a picture of an eye, but I don't think it is. It's been inked in. Look, somebody's drawn it in here. It isn't really part of the book. Think. Have you ever seen it before? No. No, wait a moment. Harry looked closer. Isn't this... Isn't it the same symbol Luna's dad was wearing around his neck? Well, that's what I thought, too. Then it's Grindelwald's mark. She stared at him open-mouthed. What? Crumb told me. He recounted the story that Victor Crumb had told him at the wedding. Hermione looked astonished. Grindelwald's mark? She looked from Harry to the weird symbol and back again. I've never heard Grindelwald had a mark. There's no mention of it in anything I've ever read about him. Well, like I say, Crumb reckoned that the symbol was carved on the wall at Durmstrang, and Grindelwald put it there. She fell back into the old armchair, frowning. That's very odd. If it's a symbol of dark magic, what's it doing in a book of children's stories? Yeah, it is weird, said Harry. And you'd think Scrimmageor would have recognized it. He was a minister. He ought to have been an expert on dark stuff. I know. Perhaps he thought it was an eye, just like I did. All the other stories have little pictures over the titles. She did not speak, but continued to pour over the strange mark. Harry tried it again. Hermione. Hm? Hm? I've been thinking. I want to go to Godric's Hollow. She looked at him, but her eyes were unfocused. He was sure she was thinking about the mysterious mark on the book. Yes, she said. Yes, I've been wondering that too. I really think we'll have to. Did you hear me right? Yes. Of course I did. You want to go to Godric's Hollow. I agree. I think we should. I mean, I can't think of anywhere else it could be either. It'll be dangerous, but the more I think about it, the more likely it seems it's there. Or what's there? Asked Harry. At that, she looked just as bewildered as he felt. Well, the sword, Harry. Dumbledore must have known you want to go back there, and I mean, Godric's Hollow is Godric Gryffindor's birthplace. Really? Gryffindor came from Godric's Hollow? Harry, did you ever open a history of magic? Mm-hmm. He said, smiling for what felt like the first time in months. The muscles in his face felt oddly stiff. I might have opened it, you know, when I bought it just the once. Well, as the village is named after him, I'd have thought you might have made the connection, said Hermione. She sounded much like her old self than she had done of late. Harry had expected her to announce that she was off to the library. There's a bit about the village and a history of magic. Wait. She opened the beaded bag and rummaged for a while, finally extracting her copy of their old school textbook, A History of Magic by Bathilda Bagshot, which she thumbed through until finding the page she wanted. 
Upon the signature of the International Statute of Secrecy in, in 1689, wizards went into hiding for good. It was natural. Perhaps they formed their own small communities within a community. Many small villages and hamlets attracted several magical families who banded together for mutual support and protection. The village of Tenworth in Cornwall, Upper Flaggy in Yorkshire, and Ottery St. Catchpole on the south coast of England were notable homes to knots of wizarding families who lived alongside tolerant and sometimes confunded muggles. Most celebrated of these half-magical dwellings is, perhaps, Godric's Hollow, the West Country village where the great wizard Godric Gryffindor was born, where Bowman Wright Wizarding Smith forged the first golden snitch. The graveyard is full of the names of ancient magical families, and this accounts no doubt for the stories of hauntings that have dogged the little church beside it for many centuries. You and your parents aren't mentioned, Hermione said, closing the book, because Professor Bagshot doesn't cover anything later than the end of the 19th century. But you see, Godric's Hollow, Godric Gryffindor, Gryffindor's Sword, don't you think Dumbledore would have expected you to make the connection? Oh, yeah. Harry did not want to admit that he had not been thinking about the sword at all when he suggested they go to Godric's Hollow. For him, the lore of the village lay in his parents' graves, the house where he had narrowly escaped death and in person of Bathilda Bagshot. Remember what Muriel said, he asked eventually. Who? You know, he hesitated. He did not want to say Ron's name. Jenny's great aunt, at the wedding. The one who said you had skinny ankles? Oh, said Hermione. It was a sticky moment. Harry knew that she had sensed Ron's name in the offing. He rushed on. She said Bathilda Bagshot still lives in Godric's Hollow. Bathilda Bagshot, murmured Hermione, running her index finger over Bathilda's embossed name on the cover of A History of Magic. Well, I suppose. She gasped so dramatically that Harry's insides turned over. He drew his wand looking around at the entrance, half expecting to see a hand forcing its way through the entrance flap, but there was nothing there. What? He said, half angry, half relieved. What did you do that for? I thought you'd seen a Death Eater unzipping the tent, at least. Harry, what if Bathilda's got the sword? What if Dumbledore's entrusted to her? Harry considered this possibility. Bathilda would be an extremely old woman by now, and according to Muriel, she was Gaga. Was it likely that Dumbledore would have hidden the sword of Gryffindor with her? If so, Harry felt that Dumbledore had left a great deal to chance. Dumbledore had never revealed that he had replaced the sword with a fake, nor had he so much as mentioned a friendship with Bathilda. Now, however, was not the moment to cast doubt on Hermione's theory, not when she was so surprisingly willing to fall in with Harry's dearest wish. Yeah, we might might have done. So, are we going to Godric's Hollow? Yes, but we'll have to think it through carefully, Harry. She was sitting up now, and Harry could tell that the prospect of having a plan again had lifted her mood as much as his. We'll need to practice disapparating together under the invisibility cloak for a start, and perhaps disillusionment charms would be sensible too, unless you think we should go the whole hog and use polyjuice potion... In that case, we'll need to collect hair from somebody. I actually think we'd better do that. Harry, the thicker our disguises, the better. Harry let her talk, nodding and agreeing wherever there was a pause, but his mind had left the conversation. For the first time since he had discovered the sword and Gringotts was a fake, 
He felt excited. He was about to go home, about to return to the place where he had a family. It was in Godric's Hollow. That but for Voldemort, he would have grown up and spent every school holiday. He could have invited friends to his house. He might even had a brothers and sisters. It would have been his mother who made his 17th birthday cake. The life had lost had hardly ever seemed so real at the moment, at this moment, when he knew he was about to see the place where it had been taken from him. After Hermione had gone to bed that night, Harry quietly extracted his rucksack from Hermione's beaded bag, and from inside it, the photograph album Hagrid had given him so long ago. For the first time in months, he pursued, he perused the old photos of his parents smiling and waving up at him from images which were all had left of them now. Harry would gladly have set out for Godric's Hollow the following day, but Hermione had other ideas. Convinced as she was that Voldemort would expect Harry to return to the scene of his parents' deaths, she was determined that they would set off only after they had ensured that they had their best disguise po- disguises possible. It was therefore a full week later, once they had surreptitiously obtained hairs from innocent muggles who were Christmas shopping and had practiced apparating and disapparating while underneath the invisibility cloak together, that Hermione agreed to make the journey. They were to apparate to the village under the cover of darkness, so it was late afternoon when they finally swallowed Polyjuice Potion. Harry transforming into a balding middle-aged muggle man, Hermione into a small and rather mousy wife. The beaded bag containing all their possessions apart from the horcrux which Harry was wearing around his neck was tucked into an inside pocket of Hermione's buttoned-up coat. Harry lowered the invisibility cloak over them, and then they turned into the suffocating darkness once again heart beating in his throat. Harry opened his eyes. They were standing hand in hand in a snowy lane under a dark blue sky in which the night's first stars were already glimmering feebly. Cottages stood on either side of the narrow road, Christmas decorations twinkling in their windows. A short way ahead of him, them a glow of golden street lights indicated the center of the village. All the snow, Hermione whispered beneath the cloak. Why didn't we think of snow? After all precautions, we'll leave Prince. We'll just have to get rid of them. You go in front. I'll do it. Harry did not want to enter the village like a pantomime horse, trying to keep themselves concealed by magically covering their traces. Let's take off the cloak, said Harry, when she looked frightened. Oh, come on. We don't look like us, and there's no one around. He stowed the cloak under his jacket, and they made their way forward unhampered the icy air stinging their faces as they passed more cottages. Any one of them might have been the one in which James and Lily had once lived, or where Bathilda lived now. Harry gazed at the front door, their snow-burdened roofs and their front porches wondering whether he remembered any of them, knowing deep inside that it was impossible, that he had been little more than a year old when he had left this place forever. He was not even sure whether he would be able to see the cottage at all. He did not know what happened when subjects of the Fidelis charm died. Then the little lane along which they were walking curved to the left, the heart of the village and small square was revealed to them. Strung all around with colored lights, there was what looked like a war memorial in the middle, partly obscured by a wind-blown Christmas tree. There were several shops, a post office, a pub, and a little church whose stained glass windows were glowing jewel bright across the square. The snow here had been impacted. It was hard and slippery where people had trodden on it all day. Villagers were crisscrossing in front of them, 
their figures briefly illuminated by street lamps, they heard a snatch of laughter and a pop music as the pub door opened and closed. Then they heard a carol start up inside the little church. Harry, I think it's Christmas Eve, said Hermione. Is it? He had lost track of the date. They had not seen a newspaper for weeks. I'm sure it is, said Hermione, her eyes upon the church. They, they'll be in here, won't they? Your mom and dad. I can see the graveyard behind it. Harry felt th a thrill of something that was beyond excitement, more like fear. Now that he was so near, he wondered whether he wanted to see after all. Perhaps Hermione knew how he was feeling, because she reached for his hand and took the lead for the first time, pulling him forward. Halfway across the square, however, she stopped dead. Harry, look! She was pointing at the war memorial. As they had passed it, it had transformed. Instead of an obelisk covered in names, there was a statue of three people. A man with untidy hair and glasses, a woman with long hair and a kind, pretty face, and a baby boy sitting in his mother's arms. Snow lay upon all their heads like fluffy white caps. Harry drew clo closer, gazing, upon, gazing up into his parents' faces. He had never imagined that there would be a statue. How strange it was to see himself represented in stone. A happy baby boy without a scar on his forehead. Come on, said Harry. When he had looked his fill, they turned again toward the church. As they crossed the road, he glanced over his shoulder. The statue had turned back into a war memorial. The singing grew louder as they approached the church. It made Harry's throat constrict. It reminded him so forcefully of Hogwarts of Peas, of Peeves, bellowing rude versions of carols from inside suits of armor, of the Great Hall's twelve Christmas trees of Dumbledore, wearing a bonnet he had won in a cracker, of Ron in a hand-knitted sweater. There was a kissing gate at the entrance to the graveyard. Hermione pushed it open as quietly as possible, and they edged through it. On either side of the slippery path to the church doors, the snow lay deep and untouched. They moved off through the snow, carving deep trenches behind them as they walked around the building, keeping to the shadows beneath the brilliant windows. Behind the church, row upon row of snowy tombstones protruded from the blanket of pale blue that was flecked with dazzling red, gold, and green wherever the reflections from the stained glass hit the snow. Keeping his hand closed tightly on the wand in his jacket pocket, Harry moved toward the nearest grave. Look at this! It's an abbot! Could be some long-lost relation of the Hannahs. Keep your voice down, Hermione begged him. They wadded deeper and deeper into the graveyard, gouging dark tracks into snow behind them, stooping to peer to the words on old headstones, every now and then squinting into the surrounding darkness to make absolutely sure that they were unaccompanied. Harry, here! Hermione was two rows of tombstones away. He had to wade back to her, his heart positively banging in his chest. Is it? No, but look! She pointed to the dark stone. Harry stooped down and he saw upon the frozen, lynchin-spotted granite the words, Kendra Dumbledore, and a short way below her dates of birth and death and her daughter, Ariana. There was also a quotation. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So Rita Skeeter and Muriel had got some of their facts right. The Dumbledore family had indeed lived here, and part of it had died here. 
Seeing the grave was worse than hearing about it. Harry could not help thinking that he and Dumbledore both had deep roots in this graveyard, and that Dumbledore ought to have told him so, yet had never thought to share the connection. They could have visited this place together. For a moment, Harry imagined coming here with Dumbledore, of what a bond that would have been, of how much it would have meant to him, but it seemed that to Dumbledore, the fact that their families lay side by side in the same graveyard had been an unimportant coincidence, irrelevant perhaps, to the job he wanted Harry to do. Hermione was looking at Harry, and he was glad that, that his face was hidden in shadow. He read the words on the tombstone again, Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He did not understand what these words meant. Surely Dumbledore had chosen them as the eldest member of the family once his mother had died. Are you sure he never mentioned Hermione again? No, said Harry curtly, and then, let's keep looking, and he turned. Turned away, wishing he had not seen the stone. He did not want his excited trepidation tainted with resentment. Here, cried Hermione again a few moments later from out of the darkness. Oh no, sorry, I, I thought it said Potter. She was rubbing and crumbling mossy stone, gazing down at it, a little frown on her face. Harry, come back a moment. He did not want to be sidetracked again, and only grudgingly made his way back through the snow toward her. What? Look at this! The grave was extremely old, weathered so that Harry could hardly make out the name. Hermione showed him the symbol beneath it. Harry, that's the mark in this book. He peered at the place she indicated. The stone was so worn that it was hard to make out what was engraved there. Through there did seem to be a triangular mark beneath the nearly illegible name. Yeah, it could be. Hermione lit her wand and pointed it at the name on the headstone. It says Ignatus, I think. I'm going to keep looking for my parents, all right? Hermione, Harry told her. A slight edge in his voice, and he set off again, leaving her crouched beside the old grave. Every now and then he recognized a surname like that, like Abbott. He had met at Hogwarts. Sometimes there were several generations of the same wizarding family represented in the graveyard. Harry could tell from the dates that it had either died out or the current members had moved away from Godric's Hollow. Deeper and deeper amongst the graves he went, every time he reached a new headstone, felt a little lurk of apprehension and anticipation. The darkness and silence seemed to become all of a sudden, much deeper. Harry looked around, worried, thinking of Dementors, then realized that the carols had finished, and the chatter and flurry of churchgoers were fading away, as they made their way back into the square, somebody inside the church had just turned off the lights. Then Hermione's voice came out of the blackness for the third time, sharp and clear from a few yards away. Harry, they're here! Right here! And he knew by her tone that it was his mother and father this time. He moved toward her, feeling as if something heavy were pressing on his chest. The same sensation he had had the right... He had had right after Dumbledore had died, a grief that had actually weighed on his heart and lungs. The headstone was only two rows behind Kendra and Ariana's. It was made of white marble, just like Dumbledore's tomb, and this made it easy to read. As it seemed to shine in the dark, Harry did not need to kneel or even approach very close to it to make out the words engraved upon it. James Potter, born 27 March 1960, died 
31 October 1981. Lily Potter, born 30 January 1960, died 31st October 1981. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Harry read the words slowly, as though he would have only one chance to take in their meaning. He read the last of them out loud. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. A horrible thought came to him, and with it, a kind of panic. Isn't that a Death Eater idea? Why is that there? It doesn't mean defeating death in the way Death Eaters mean it, Harry, said Hermione, her voice gentle. It means, you know, living beyond death, living after death. But they were not living, thought Harry. They were gone. The empty words could not disguise the fact that his parents' moldering remains lay beneath the snow and stone, indifferent, unknowing, and tears came before he could stop them. Boiling hot and then instantly freezing on his face, what was the point in wiping them off or pretending? He let them fall, his lips pressed hard together, looking down at the thick snow hiding from his eyes, the place where the last of Lily and James lay, bones now, surely are dust. Not knowing or caring that their living son stood so near, his heart still beating. Alive, because of their sacrifice and close to wishing at this moment that he was sleeping under the snow with them. Hermione had taken his hand again and was gripping it tightly. He could not look at her but return the pressure, now taking deep sharp gulps of the night air, trying to steady himself, trying to regain control. He should have brought something to give them. He had not thought of it every plant in the ground was leafless and frozen but hermione raised her wand moved it in a circle through the air and a wreath of christmas roses blossomed before them harry caught it and laid it on his parents grave as soon as he stood up he wanted to leave he did not think he could stand another moment here he put his arm around hermione's shoulders and she put hers around his waist and they turned in silence and walked away through the snow past Dumbledore's mother and sister back towards the dark church and out of sight kissing gate. Yeah, man, pretty full circle stuff there is for sure. So what takeaways did you have from this chapter, man? Yeah, the first thing I have is the symbol from Xenophilus Lovegood's chain is also in the copy of Tales of the Beetle, the Bard, Dumbledore left Hermione. And Harry tells her it's also Grindelwald's mark, so it's like this symbol keeps popping up, and it's even going to come later down the same exact <laughs> the chapter too. So that's at the very beginning of the chapter. Then going on, uh, it's not that shocking or surprising, but we learn and get the actual facts that Godric's Hollow is Godric Gryffindor's birthplace, so we, we have that finally clear. Um, Harry, Harry wants to see Bethilda Bagshot more than anything to ask questions about Dumbledore, which is going to be a big foreshadow I'm about to take right ahead here uh, into this next chapter. Uh, I thought it was pretty wild that Harry decided to wear the Horcrux to Godric's Hollow, considering what's about to happen. Not giving away any spoilers. Uh, also, <laughs> kind of ironic that they go to Godric's Hollow on Christmas Eve, since they've been on the move since August, so of all days they decide Christmas Eve, even though it was an accident, so just a little takeaway I had, but... Uh, 
I thought it was cool how the war memorial turned into statues of James Lee, uh, James yeah. Lee and Harry as a baby when wizards approached it. But when wizards walked away, it went turned back into a regular war memorial for muggles. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, we see Kendra and Ariana Dumbledore's grave. Hermione finds Ignotus Peveril's grave with the mark in the book that you can barely read. But uh, she thinks it says Ignotus anyways, and we'll find out later she's right. That doesn't really make any difference there. So this symbol again appears. So this symbol has now been on Zeno the Felix and Lovegood's chain, in the Tales of Beetle the Bard, in... Uh, it's uh, by Crim said... Victor Crumb said it was Grindelwald's mark, and now it's on this other dude's grave named Ignotus Peveril. So this is like uh, this thing's coming up time and time again, and it's huge. You know, obviously, it's you know the namesake of the book, right? So it's very, very big stuff. Now number nine here, Harry gets to see his parents' grave after all this time. Side note: James and I almost have the same birthday. His is March 27th, mine's March 29th. So I thought that was cool. And uh, also the words on the headstone, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. I think that's a big foreshadow, too, about what kind of goes on in this book, especially towards the end. So those are the takeaways that I have from those, that chapter, everything that goes on throughout the chapter. What are some of the things that you have down? Yeah, uh, that's cool you said that because, you know, one of my takeaways was, uh, so Lily's birthday is January 30th, mine's January 28th. <laughs> so how funny is that <laughs> yeah yeah so you got that's james i got lily <laughs> that's really cool that's so um, funny yeah and it's like so two that, days that, for both of us this is the 27th mine's literally the 29th yours is the 28th hers is the 30th like it's two days between each that's really funny man i didn't even know that that's wild yeah that was really cool and that was so funny because great minds think alike like that was one of my takeaways <laughs> <laughs> but it was for lily so that was cool for sure um other than that i think you hit pretty much all of them nail on the head i mean it's definitely a really big impactful moment because it's such a full circle moment i mean harry's been talking about showing up to this place since half blood prince at the very end there um wanting to see you know where his parents was and trying to find out answers there which that definitely takes us into the next chapter you're about to get uh just a little side note which you mentioned this a little bit um in passing at the beginning with the bullet points and stuff just snape um you know i thought it was interesting he's been like reinstating umbridge's old decrees and stuff so just throwing that out there um but yeah i think this is just more of a I mean, we find out a lot of information of it's more of an emotional, powerful chapter because it's the full circle moments coming into play where it's raising so many questions. It's almost like you feel overwhelmed for these characters. Like it, you're you would think they're trying to get to the point where they're finding out answers. But now that he's finding out all this past stuff from Dumbledore, he feels like he almost couldn't trust him. Uh, at the same time he's seeing his parents it's almost like all this overwhelmingness just boiling to a pulp uh, for Harry with all this stuff he's been dealing with for so many years and at the same time I think a lot of people forget Hermione's going through some shit too like I mean at the same time she had to leave her entire family you know and then uh, Ron you know the person I feel like she has those feelings towards like just disapparated and said f off <laughs> and uh so i mean it's just kind of the that moment you know two best friends are really there for each other but at the same time it's almost like if you've been on a trip with someone for so long like it's like they're they're still at the point where they're just like 
tired of being nice to each other. <laughs> like they're just like finally like they're gonna be just very blunt and to the point at that point. But no, I think you hit all the takeaways uh, down to the T there. Um, and you know, I'll let you go ahead and close us out. This is one you want to read from beginning to end because this is uh, this one doesn't stop. Like this is, you know, if you thought it's been good so far, it's about to it's about to hit a huge action-packed moment and i'm going to turn it over to jay nelly and he's going to close us out for today for sure like you said man this is literally the very first word of the beginning of the chapter to the very last word at the end of the chapter ain't no bullet points in this one man it's just a down it up so i'm gonna take a little malice swig here from my water and and get right to it because this is a big one man (sighs) all right Here we go. Harry, stop. What's wrong? They only just reached the grave of the unknown abbot. There's someone here. Someone watching us. I can tell. There, over by the bushes. They stood quite still, holding onto each other, gazing at the dense black boundary of the graveyard. Harry could not see anything. Are you sure? I saw something move. I could have sworn I did. She broke free from him to free her wand arm. We look like muggles, Harry pointed out. Muggles who have just been laying flowers on your parents' grave, Harry. I'm sure there's someone over there. Harry thought of a history of magic. The graveyard was supposed to be haunted. What if? But then he heard a rustle and saw a little eddy of dislodged snow in the bush to which Hermione had pointed. Ghosts could not move snow. It's a cat, said Harry for a second or two, or a bird. Or if it was a death eater, we'd be dead by now. Uh, but let's get out of here and we can put the cloak back on. They glanced back repeatedly as they made their way out of the graveyard. Harry, who did not feel as sanguine as he pretended when reassuring Hermione, was glad to reach the gate in slippery pavement. They pulled the invisibility cloak back over themselves. The pub was fuller than before. Many voices inside it were now singing the carol that they had heard as they approached the church. For a moment, Harry considered suggesting that they take refuge inside, but before he could say anything, Hermione murmured, let's go this way, and pulled him down the dark street leading out of the village in the opposite direction from which they had entered. Harry could make out the point where the cottages ended and the lane turned into open country again. They walked as quickly as they dared, past more windows, sparkling multicolored lights, the outlines of Christmas trees dark the curtains. How are we going to find Bathilda's house? asked Hermione, who was shivering a little and kept glancing back over her shoulder. Harry, what do you think? Harry? Well, she tugged at his arm, but Harry was not paying attention. He was looking towards a dark mass that stood at the very end of this row of houses. Next moment, he had sped up, dragging Hermione along with him, and she slipped a little on the ice. Harry, look. Look at it, Hermione. I don't... Oh. He could see it. The Fidelius charm must have died with James and Lily. The hedge had grown wild in the 16 years since Hagrid had taken Harry from the rubble that lay scattered amongst the waist-high grass. Most of the cottage was still standing, though entirely covered in the dark ivy and snow, but at the right side of the top of the floor, it had been blown apart. That, Harry was sure, was where the curse had backfired. He and Hermione stood at the gate, gazing up at the wreck of what must have once been the cottage, just like those that flanked it. I wonder why nobody's ever rebuilt it, whispered Hermione. Maybe you can't rebuild it, replied Harry. Maybe it's like the injuries from dark magic and you can't repair the damage. He slipped a hand from beneath a cloak and grasped the snowy and thickly rusted gate, not wishing to open it, but simply to hold some part of the house. You're not going to go inside. It looks unsafe. It might... Oh, oh, Harry, look! His touch on the gate seemed to have done it. A sign had risen out of the ground in front of them, up through the tangles of nettles and weeds, like some bizarre, fast-growing flower, and in golden letters upon the wood... It said, On this spot, on the night of October 31st, 1981, Lily and James Potter lost their lives. 
Their son Harry remains the only wizard ever to have survived the killing curse. This house, invisible to muggles, has been left in its ruined state as a monument to the Potters and as a reminder of the fa- violence that tore apart their family. And all around these neatly lettered words, scribbles had been added by other witches and wizards who had come to see the place where the boy who lived had escaped. Some had merely signed their names in everlasting ink. Others had carved their initials into the wood, and still others had left messages. The most recent of these, shining brightly over 16 years' worth of magical graffiti, all said similar things. Good luck, Harry, wherever you are. If you read this, Harry, we're all behind you. Long live Harry Potter. They should have written on the sign, said Hermione indignant. But Harry beamed at her. It's brilliant. I'm glad they did. I... He broke off. A heavily muffled figure was hobbling up the lane towards them, silhouetted by the bright lights in the distant square. Harry thought, though it was hard to judge, that the figure was a woman. She was moving slowly, possibly frightened of slipping on the snowy ground. Her stoop, her stoutness, her shuffling gait all gave an impression of an extreme age. They watched in silence as she drew nearer. Harry was waiting to see whether she would turn into any of the cottages she was passing, but he knew instinctively that she would not. At last, she came to a halt a few yards from them and simply stood there in the middle of the frozen road facing them. He did not need Hermione's pinch to his arm. There was next to no chance that this woman was a muggle. She was standing there gazing at a house that ought to have been completely invisible to her if she was not a witch. Even assuming that she was a witch, however, it was odd behavior to come out on a night this cold simply to look at an old ruin. And by all means of normal magic, she ought not to be able to see Hermione and him at all since they were underneath the invisibility cloak. Nevertheless, Harry had the strangest feeling that she knew that they were there and also who they were. Just as he had reached this uneasy conclusion, she raised a gloved hand and beckoned. Hermione moved close to him under the cloak, her arm pressed against his. How does she know? He shook his head. The woman beckoned again, more vigorously. Harry could not think of many reasons not to obey the summons, and yet his suspicions about her identity were growing stronger every moment that they stood facing each other on deserted street. Was it possible that she had been waiting for them all these long months, that Dumbledore had told her to wait, and that Harry would come in the end? Was it not likely that it was she who had moved in the shadows in the graveyard and followed them to this spot? Even her ability to sense them suggested some Dumbledore-ish power that he had never encountered before. Finally, Harry spoke, causing Hermione to gasp and jump. Are you Bethilda? The muffled figure nodded and beckoned again. Beneath the cloak, Harry and Hermione looked at each other. Harry raised his eyebrows. Hermione gave a tiny, nervous nod, and they stepped toward the woman, and at once she turned and hobbled off back the way they had come. Leading them past several houses, she turned in at a gate. They followed up the front path through a garden nearly as overgrown as the one they had just left. She fumbled for a moment with a key at the front door, then opened it and stepped back to let them pass. She smelled bad, or perhaps it was her house. Harry wrinkled his nose as they sidled past her and pulled off the cloak. Now that he was beside her, he realized how tiny she was. Bowed down with age, she barely came level with his chest. She closed the door behind them, her knuckles blue and mottled against the peeling paint, then turned and peered into Harry's face. Her eyes were thick with cataracts and sunken into folds of transparent skin, and her whole face was dotted with broken veins and liver spots. He wondered whether she could make him out at all. Even if she could, it was the balding muggle whose identity he had stolen that she would see. The odor of old age, of dust, of unwashed clothes and stale food intensified as she unwound a moth-eaten black shawl, revealing a head of scant white hair through which a scalp showed clearly. Bethilda, he repeated. She nodded again. Harry became aware of the locket against his skin. The thing inside that sometimes ticked or beat had woken. He could feel it pulsing through the cold gold. Did it know? Could it sense that the thing that would destroy it was near? 
Bethilda shuffled past them, pushing Hermione aside as though she had not seen her, and vanished into somewhat uh, to be a sitting room. Harry, I'm not sure about this, breathed Hermione. Look at the size of her. I think we could overpower her if we had to, said Harry. Listen, I should have told you. I knew she wasn't all there. Muriel called her Gaga. Come, called Bethilda from the next room. Hermione jumped and clutched Harry's arm. It's okay, said Harry reassuringly, as he led the way into the sitting room. Bethilda was tottering around the place, lighting candles, but it was still very dark, not to mention extremely dirty. Thick dust crunched beneath their feet, and Harry's nose detected, underneath the dank and mildewed smell, something worse, like meat gone bad. He wondered when was the last time anyone had been inside Bethilda's house to check whether she was coping. She seemed to have forgotten that she could do magic, too, for she lit the candles clumsily by hand, her trailing lace cuff in constant danger of catching fire. "'Let me do that,' offered Harry." and he took the matches from her. She stood watching him as he finished lighting the candle stubs that stood on saucers around the room, perched precariously on stacks of books and side tables crammed with cracked and moldy cups. The last surface on which Harry spotted a candle was a bow-fronted chest of drawers in which stood a large number of photographs. When the flame danced into life, its reflection wavered on the dusty glass and silver. He saw a few tiny movements from the pictures, and as Bethilda fumbled with the logs of the fire, he muttered, Turgio, and the dust vanished from the photographs, and he saw at once that half a dozen were missing from the largest and most ornate frames. He wondered why Bethilda or somebody else had removed them. Then, the sight of a photograph near the back of the collection caught his eye and he snatched it up. It was a golden-haired, merry-faced thief, the man who had perched on Grigorovich's windowsill, smiling lazily up at Harry out of the silver frame. And it came to Harry instantly where he had seen him before. The life and lies of Albus Dumbledore, arm-in-arm arm with a teenage Dumbledore, and that must be where all the photographs were missing where they must be in Rita's book. Mrs. Miss Bagshot, he said. His voice shook slightly. Who is this? Bethilda was standing in the middle of the room watching Hermione light the fire for her. Miss Bagshot, Harry repeated, and he advanced with a picture in his hands as the flames burst into life in the fireplace. Bethilda looked up at his voice, and the horcrux beat faster upon his chest. Who is this person, he asked her, pushing the picture forward. She peered at it solemnly and then up at Harry. Do you know who this is? He repeated in a much slower and louder voice than usual. This man, do you know him? What's he called? Bathilda merely looked vague. Harry felt an awful frustration. How had Rita Skeeta unlocked Bathilda's memories? Who is this man? He repeated loudly. Harry, what are you doing? asked Hermione. This picture, Hermione. It's the thief. The thief who stole from Grigorovich. Please, he said to Bathilda. Who is this? But she only stared at him. Why did you ask us to come with you, Mrs. Miss Bagshot? asked Hermione, raising her own voice. Was there something you wanted to tell us? Given no sign that she had heard Hermione, Bethilda now shuffled a few steps closer to Harry. With a little jerk up her head, she looked back into the hall. You want us to leave? he asked. She repeated the gesture, this time pointing first at Harry, then herself, then at the ceiling. Oh, right. I, Hermione, I think she wants me to go upstairs with her. All right, said Hermione, let's go. But when Hermione moved, Bethilda shook her head with surprising vigor, once more pointing at, uh, first at Harry, then to herself. She wants me to go with her alone. Why? asked Hermione, and her voice rang up sharp and clear in the candlelit room. The old lady shook her head a little at the loud noise. Maybe Dumbledore told her to give the sword to me and only to me. Do you really think she knows who you are? Yes, said Harry, looking down into the milky eyes fixed upon his own. I think she does. Well, okay then, but be quick, Harry. Lead the way, Harry told Bethilda. She seemed to understand because she shuffled around towards the door. Harry glanced back at Hermione with a reassuring smile, but he was not sure that she had seen it. She stood hugging herself in the midst of a candlelit squalor looking towards a bookcase. 
As Harry walked out of the room, unseen by both Hermione and Bethilda, he slipped a silver-framed photograph of the unknown thief inside his jacket. The stairs were steep and narrow. Harry was half-tempted to place his hands on stout Bethilda's backside to ensure that she did not topple over backwards on top of him, which seemed only too likely. Slowly, wheezing a little, she climbed to the upper landing, turned immediately right, and led him into a low-ceilinged bedroom. It was pitch black and smelled horrible. Harry had just made out a chamber pot protruding from under the bed before Bethilda closed the door, and even that was swallowed by darkness. Lumos, said Harry, and his wand ignited. He gave a start. Bethilda moved close to him in those few seconds of darkness. He had not heard her approach. You are Potter? she whispered. Yes, I am. She nodded slowly, solemnly, and Harry felt the horcrux beating fast, faster than his own heart. It was an unpleasant, agitating sensation. Have you got anything for me? Harry asked, but she seemed distracted by his lit wand tip. Have you got anything for me? He repeated. Then she closed her eyes and several things happened at once. Harry's scar prickled painfully. The horcrux twitched so that the front of his sweater actually moved. The dark, fetid room dissolved momentarily. He felt a leap of joy and spoke in a cold, high voice. Hold him! Harry swayed where he stood. The dark, foul-smelling room seemed to close around him again. He did not know what just happened. Hey, have you got anything for me? He asked for a third time, much louder. Over here, she whispered, pointing to the corner. Harry raised his wand and saw the outline of a cluttered dressing table beneath the curtain window. This time she did not lead him. Harry edged between her and the unmade bed, his wand raised. He did not want to look away from her. What is it? He asked as he reached the dressing table, which was heaped high with what looked like and smelled like dirty laundry. There, she said, pointing at the shapeless mass. And then, in the instant that he looked away, his eyes taking in the tangled mess for a sword hilt, a ruby, she moved weirdly. He saw it out of the corner of his eye. Panic made him turn, and horror paralyzed him as he saw the old body collapsing and the great snake pouring from the place where her neck had been. The snake had struck as he raised his wand. The force of the bite to his forearm sent the wand spinning up towards the ceiling. Its light swung dizzyingly around the room and was extinguished. Then a powerful blow from the tail to his midriff knocked the breath out of him. He fell backward onto the dressing table into the mound of filthy clothing. He rolled sideways, narrowly avoiding the tails of the snake, which thrashed upon the table where he had been a second earlier. Fragments of the glass surface rained upon him as he hit the floor. From below, he heard Hermione call, Harry! He could not get enough breath into his lungs to call back. Then a heavy, smooth mass smashed him into the floor, and he felt it slide over him, powerful, muscular. No, he gasped, pinned to the floor. Yes, whispered the voice. Yes, hold you, hold you. Accio, Accio won, but nothing happened, and he needed his hands to try and force the snake from him as it coiled itself around his torso, squeezing the air from him, pressing the horcrux hard into his chest, a circle of ice that throbbed with life, inches from his own frantic heart, and his brain was flooding with cold white light, all thought obliterated, his own breath drowned, distant footsteps, everything going, a metal heart was banging outside his chest, and now he was flying, flying with triumph in his heart, without need of a broomstick or thestral. He was abruptly awake in the sour-smelling darkness, and Nagini had released him. He scrambled up and saw a snake outlined against the landing. It struck, and Hermione dived aside with a shriek. Her deflected curse hit the curtain window. It shattered. Frozen air filled the room as Harry ducked to avoid another shower of broken glass. Then his foot slipped on a pencil-like something. His wand bent, snatched it up, and now the room was full of the snake, its tail thrashing. Hermione was nowhere to be seen, and for a moment Harry thought the worst. But then there was a loud bang and a flash of red light and the snake flew into the air, smacking hard, Harry hard in the face as it went, coil after heavy coil rising up to the ceiling. Harry raised his wand, but as he did so, his scar seared more painfully, more powerfully than it had done in years. 
He's coming! Hermione, he's coming! As he yelled, the snake fell, hissing wildly. Everything was chaos. It smashed shells from the wall. Splintered china flew everywhere. As Harry jumped over the bed, he sees a dark shape he knew to be Hermione. She shrieked with pain as he pulled her back across the bed. The snake reared again, but as Harry knew what worse than the snake was coming, he already was perhaps at the gate. His head was going to split open with the pain from his scar, and the snake lunged. He took a running leap, dragging Hermione with him, and as it struck... Hermione screamed, Confrigio! And the spell flew around the room, exploding the wardrobe mirror, ricocheting back at them, bouncing from floor to ceiling. And Harry felt the heat of it sear the back of his hand. Glass cut his cheek, pulling Hermione with him. He leapt from the bed to the broken dressing table, and then straight out the smash window into nothingness. Her scream reverberating throughout the night as they twisted in midair. And then his scar burst open, and he was Voldemort. And he was running across the fetid bedroom with his long, white hands clutching at the windowsill as he glimpsed the bald man and the little woman twist and vanish. And he screamed with rage, a scream that mingled with the girls that echoed across the dark gardens over the church bells ringing in Christmas Day. And his scream was Harry's scream. His pain was Harry's pain. That it could happen here, where it happened before. Here, within sight of the house, where he had come so close to knowing what it was to die. To die, the pain was so terrible, ripped from his body. But if he had no body, why did his head hurt so badly? And if he was dead, how could he feel so unbearably? Didn't pain cease with death? Didn't it go? The night, wet and windy, two children dressed as pumpkins, waddling across the square, and the shop windows covered in paper spiders, all the tawdry muggled trappings of a world in which they did not believe. And he was gliding, that sense of purpose and power and rightness in him that he always knew on these occasions. Not anger, that was for weaker souls than he, but in triumph, yes. He had waited for this, he had hoped for it. Nice costume, mister! He saw the small boy's smile falter as he ran near enough to see beneath the hood of the cloak, saw fear clouded his painted face. And then the child turned and ran away. Beneath the robe, he fingered the handle of his wand. One simple movement, and the child would never reach his mother. But unnecessary. Quite unnecessary. And along a new and darker street, he moved. And now his destination was in sight at last, the Fidelius charm broken, though they did not know it yet. And he made less noise than the dead leaves slithering along the pavement as he drew level with the dark hedge and stared over it. They had not drawn the curtains. He saw them quite clearly in their little sitting room. The tall, black-haired man in his glasses, making puffs of colored smoke, erupt from his wand for the amusement of the small, black-haired boy in his blue pajamas. The child was laughing and trying to catch the smoke to grab it in his small fist. A door opened and the mother entered, saying words he could not hear. Her long, dark red hair falling over her face. Now the father scooped up the son and handed him to the mother. He threw his wand down upon the sofa, stretching and yawning. The gate creaked a little as he pushed it open, but James Potter did not hear. His white hand pulled the wand beneath his cloak and pointed it at the door, which burst open. He was over the threshold as James came sprinting into the hall. It was easy. Too easy. He had not even picked up his wand. Lily, take Harry and go. It's him. Go. Run. I'll hold him off. Hold him off. Without a wand in his hand. He laughed before casting the curse. Avada Kedavra! and the green light filled the cramped hallway. It lit and the pram pushed against the wall. It made the banisters glare like lightning rods, and James Potter fell like a marionette whose strings were cut. He could hear her screaming from the upper floor, trap, but as long as she was sensible, she, at least, had nothing to fear. He climbed the steps, listening with faint amusement in her attempt to barricade herself in. 
She had no wand upon her either. How stupid they were, and how trusting, thinking that their safety lay in friends, that weapons could be discarded, even for moments. He forced the door open, cast aside the chair, and the boxes hastily piled against it with one lazy wave of his wand, and there she stood, the child in her arms. At the sight of him, she dropped her son into the crib behind her, and threw her arms wide, as if this would help, as if in shielding him from sight, she hoped to be chosen instead. Not Harry. Not Harry. Please, not Harry. Stand aside, you silly girl. Stand aside now. Not Harry, please. No, take me. Kill me instead. This is my last warning. Not Harry, please. Have mercy. Have mercy. Not Harry. Not Harry, please. I'll do anything. Stand aside. Stand aside, girl. He could have forced her away from the crib, but it seemed more prudent to finish them all. The green light flashed around the room and she dropped like her husband. The child had not cried all this time. He could stand, clutching the bars of his crib, and he looked up into the intruder's face with a kind of bright interest, perhaps thinking it was his father who hid beneath the cloak, making more pretty lights, and his mother would pop up any moment laughing. He pointed his wand very carefully into the boy's face. He wanted to see it happen. The destruction of this one inexplicable danger. The child began to cry. It had seemed that it was not James. He did not like it crying. He had never been able to stomach the small ones whining in the orphanage. Avada Kedavra! And then he broke. He was nothing, nothing but tame in terror. He must hide himself, not here in the rubble of the ruined house where the child was trapped and screaming, but far away, far away. No, he moaned. The snake rustled on the filthy cluttered floor, and he had killed the boy, and yet he was the boy. No! And now he stood at the broken window of the Bethilda's house, immersed in memories of his greatest loss, and at his feet the great snake slithered over the broken china and glass. He looked down now and saw something, something incredible. No, Harry, it's all right. You're all right. He stooped down and picked up the smashed photograph. There he was, the unknown thief, the thief he was seeking. No, I dropped it. I dropped it. Harry, it's okay. Wake up. Wake up. He was Harry. Harry, not Voldemort. And the thing that was rustling was not a snake. He opened his eyes. Harry, Hermione whispered, Did you, do you feel all right? Yes, he lied. He was in the tent, lying on one of the lower bunks beneath a heap of blankets. He could tell that it was almost dawn by the stillness and quality of the cold. Flat light beyond the canvas ceiling, he was drenched in sweat and he could feel it on the sheets and blankets. We got away. Yes, said Hermione. I had to use a hover charm to get you into your bunk. I couldn't lift you. You've been, well, you've been, you haven't been quite. There are purple shadows under her brown eyes and he noticed a small sponge in her hand. She'd been wiping his face. You've been ill, she finished, quite ill. How long ago did we leave? Hours ago. It's nearly morning. And I've been, what, unconscious? Not exactly, said Hermione uncomfortably. You've been shouting and moaning and things. She added in a tone that made Harry feel uneasy. What had he done? Screamed curses like Voldemort? Cried like the baby in the crib? I couldn't get the horcrux off of you, Hermione said, and he knew she wanted to change the subject. It was stuck. Stuck to your chest. You've got a mark. I'm sorry. I had to use a severing charm to get it away. The snake bit you too, but I've cleaned the wound and put some dittany on it. He pulled the sweaty t-shirt he was wearing away from himself and looked down. There was a scarlet oval over his heart where the locket had burned him. He could also see a half-healed puncture wounds on his forearm. Where have you put the horcrux? In my bag. I think we should keep it off for a while. He lay back on the pillow and looked into her pinched gray face. We shouldn't have gone to Godric's Hollow. It's my fault. It's all my fault, Hermione. I'm sorry. It's not your fault. I wanted to go, too. I really thought Dumbledore might have left the sword there for you. 
Yeah, well, we got that wrong, didn't we? What happened, Harry? What happened when she took you upstairs? Was the snake hiding somewhere? Did it just come out and kill her and attack you? No, he said. She was a snake. Or the snake was her all along. What? He closed his eyes. He could still smell Bethilda's house on him. It made the whole thing horribly vivid. Bethilda must have been dead a while. The snake was inside her. You know who put it there in Godric's Hollow to wait. You were right. He knew I'd go back. The snake was inside her? He opened his eyes again. Hermione looked revolted, nauseated. Lupin said there'd be magic we'd never imagined, Harry said. She didn't want to talk in front of you because it was Parseltongue. All Parseltongue. And I didn't realize, but of course I could understand her. Once we were up in the room, the snake sent a message to you-know-who. I heard it happen inside my head. I felt him get excited. He said to keep me there. And then he remembered the snake coming out of Bethilda's neck, but Hermione did not need to know the details. She changed, changed in the snake, and attacked. He looked down at the puncture marks. It wasn't supposed to kill me. Just keep me there till you know who came. If he had only managed to kill the snake, it would have all been worth it. All of it. Sick at heart, he sat up and threw back the covers. Harry, no, I'm sure you ought to rest. You're the one that needs sleep. No offense, but you look terrible. I'm fine. I'll keep watch for a while. Where's my wand? She did not answer. She merely looked at him. Where's my wand, Hermione? She was biting her lip, tears swimming in her eyes. Harry, where's my wand? She reached down beside the bed and held it out to him. The holly and phoenix swan was nearly severed in two. One fragile strand of phoenix hair kept both pieces hanging together. The wood had splintered completely apart. Harry took it into his hands as though it was a living thing that had suffered a terrible injury. He could not think properly. Everything was a blur of panic and fear. Then he held out the wand to Hermione. Mend it. Please. Harry, I don't think... When it's broken like this... Please, Hermione, try. Reparo. The dangling half of the wand resealed itself. Harry held it up. Lumos. The wand sparked feebly, then went out. Harry pointed at Hermione. Expel the Armus. Hermione's wand gave a little jerk, but it did not leave her hand. The feeble attempt at magic was too much for Harry's wand, which split into two again. He stared at it, aghast, unable to take in what he was seeing. The wand that had survived so much. Harry, Hermione whispered so quietly he could hardly hear her. I'm so, so sorry. I think it was me. As we were leaving, you know, the snake was coming for us, and so I cast a blasting curse, and it rebounded everywhere, and it must have... Must have hit. It was an accident, said Harry mechanically. He felt empty, stunned. We'll, we'll find a way to repair it. Harry, I don't think we're going to be able to, said Hermione, tears trickling down her face. Remember, remember Ron? When he broke his wand crashing the car? It was never the same again. He had to get a new one. Harry thought of Ollivander, kidnapped and held hostage by Voldemort. Of Grigorovich, who was dead. How was he supposed to find himself a new wand? Well, he said in a falsely matter-of-fact voice, well, I'll just have to borrow yours for now, then, while I'll keep watch. Her face glazed with tears. Hermione handed over her wand, and he left her sitting beside his bed, desiring nothing more than to get away from her. And that takes us to the end of the chapter that we'll close out with today. So with that big action-packed chapter, man, give us some of the takeaways that you got. Yeah, man, a lot of stuff uh, from that chapter really... I mean, talk about a full circle moment, too, on how it comes together where, you know, we're even bringing back Harry's possible tongue now <laughs> that was coming into play in Chamber of Secrets and, um, you know, in the second book in year two. Um, but, you know, he, he goes there for answers and it all comes into play where she doesn't, you know, and give really even respond. Um, so they're kind of wondering what's going on there. And, of course, Harry... Uh, sees the pictures 
um, that she has and recognizes, you know, the boy from the vision. Um, and, you know, she's not giving any answers. And the whole thing was really a, just another trap the entire time. Um, whereas then, of course, Harry goes up by himself again, not really thinking things through, uh, leaves Hermione there and they get away. Uh, she uses the Confringio uh, spell and everything explodes and it sends him into the point, you know, he has that vision and everything from where he basically fell ill when they're coming back and everything that was going on when they wound up going out the window. And he has that whole vision of from the past of, you know, that whole full circle moment there of Voldemort killing his parents and uh, the curse uh, that's, you know, that he shoot, shot right at Harry, which we won't go too much farther into that. But, um, you know, and then, uh, of course, he wakes up and now you have uh, a really big problem because during the whole uh, incident of, you know, Hermione is having to basically save his ass because he can't think anything through uh, and goes up there alone. Now his wand is snapped in two and uh, they try to repair it and it's just like how Ron's in Chamber of Secrets, another Chamber of Secrets moment. You know, his snap and he can never repair it because so he wound up having to get another one from Ollivander's, but now you have this situation with Ollivander gone and Grigorovich is killed. You know, how's he going to get another one? So you're kind of up shit's creek right now, <laughs> to say it nicely. And he's being a little ass and takes Hermione's wand when really, in my opinion, he should be fucking thanking Hermione because if it wasn't for her, like his ass could have basically died <laughs> because he went up there alone. But uh, when the whole plan was like go together, but just my takeaways from that, but it was action packed uh, from the beginning to the end of that chapter, man. So what about you? The first thing I have is like the takeaway is we see the ruins of the Potter house for the first time. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Like, like you know, we, we've heard about it all the way through the series of Harry Potter, but we've never seen it. So being able to see mm -hmm. it for the first time was pretty cool. Um, it was probably a pretty solid sign that the woman who could see through an invisibility cloak was a bad idea to follow her because I don't know, it's impossible to see through invisibility cloaks. So they probably should have had the idea yeah. <laughs> that when she was there looking at them and they were under the cloak that maybe there's some weird stuff going on, but whatever. Uh, then the next thing I have is like Nagini was inside Bathilda's body and it communicated with Voldemort then attacked the shit out of them. Uh, so Voldemort, and this is my next takeaway. This is what really I took away from this. Voldemort literally came within seconds of getting Harry and Hermione. It said that Voldemort ran across the bedroom, his long white hands clutching at the windowsill as he glimpsed the bald man and little woman twist and vanish. So maybe if he wasn't busy showing off flying through the air without the need for a broom or a thestral and instead just apparated, he would have gotten there faster and could have been that could have been the end of everything. But no, he's Voldemort. Yeah. I gotta show off that I can fly through the air with no broom and no thestral. But because he decided <laughs> to fly through the air instead of apparate, he got there too slow. If he apparated, you probably would have caught them and then the rest of the book it would have been history. But nope. We're gonna just show off because that's who I am. Uh, <laughs> Next takeaway I have after that, I thought it was interesting that it, uh, that it was Nagini was call was coiling around Harry and squeezing the Horcrux into Harry's chest because there's two pieces of Voldemort's soul right there. Nagini's a Horcrux, the locket's a Horcrux, and then Voldemort's on his way, who's also another piece of his own soul. And then I'm not going to give anything else away, but there's potentially 
four pieces of Voldemort's soul all in the same area at one time. <laughs> yeah. I think it's very yeah. interesting to kind of detail that quickly. Um, yeah. I wonder if the soul pieces recognize each other. I wonder if Nagini and the Horcrux recognize that or not. So that's an interesting thing there. But also I thought it was cool to see the full events of James and Lily's death from Voldemort's perspective. Like you were saying, went back in like time and we got to see that whole vision, but we saw it from Voldemort's perspective. Like we got right, to see it, right. like, you know, how it actually unfolded. Pretty crazy. You know, we only ever got Harry's faint memories back in book three when the Dementors affected him and he had to have those like weird flashbacks, but now we actually have the full picture of what really happened, so I think that was interesting. Yeah. Uh, Harry, again, you know, in his, like, uh, trying to get away, basically led Voldemort to finding the photograph of the thief because Voldemort would never show up to Bethilda's house if Harry didn't go. And Hermione tried to tell Harry that Voldemort would be expecting him to go there, but Harry never listens to her, so kind of stuck in that air. <laughs> And then, of course, as you mentioned, the, the, the takeaway at the end, Harry's wand's now broken. And it's not only an issue because he doesn't have a wand. That wand specifically provided some level of protection against Voldemort because of how it twisted and using his hand, the twin cores against his wand. Like, that not only wasn't just a wand. That wand had a special ability against Voldemort specifically, another form of protection, and it's gone. So, yeah, he's kind of fucked. So uh, those are my <laughs> takeaways for it. And that kind of closes us out of favorite moments. So... Yeah, man, what do you got for some potential plot holes in this motherfucker? Uh, I didn't find, like, major plot holes. Uh, this one I talked about with you is... It's not really that big of a deal. It's just kind of like, what are the odds kind of game. Like, what are the odds, like, Ted and Dean Thomas would randomly show up to the old Quidditch woods <laughs> where, like, they had the Quidditch World Cup? Like, out of all places... Like, I understand why they got there, but, like, it's kind of, like, what are the odds, like, that would be the place? Like, that would go through their head to go there. Like, out of all, that's my only, like, major one. Um, and I think it's kind of ridiculous that Harry can't ever think anything through. <laughs> Just, like, like, no matter how old he gets and no matter how many times they talk to him about this shit... Like, he can never think anything through and goes up there alone. Uh, I still think it's kind of ridiculous that Voldemort's the only Death Eater that can, like, fly. Like, has Superman powers, but just kind of throwing that out there. But that was my major one, was the Ted Tonks and Dean Thomas. What about you, man? Yeah, I mean, I could see, like, Voldemort has been showing magic outside of normal capacity for a long time now. So the fact that he can fly doesn't bother me. It's just the fact that maybe he didn't want to be a dick showing how cool he is and how kind of magic he's got now he probably could have caught Harry and Hermione if he just apparated like a normal person but anyways, <laughs> yeah yeah true <laughs> uh no the, the, like the only two that I found and the, the, the first one here and it's not even really a plot hole it's more of a question I pretty much answer it myself but like Dol Dolores Umbridge was wearing that necklace consistently all the time but during like when she would go to work at the Ministry of Magic so like how did she not feel any of the possessive effects like it affected Harry and Ron and Hermione? Like, it affected Ron so badly that he basically forsake his best friends. He said, screw you guys, I'm out of here. Like, that, hor <laughs> the Horcrux affected Ron crazily, and it affected Harry and Hermione. Like, they were all short-tempered. They weren't themselves when they had the Horcrux on. So, I'm like, how did Dolores just have this dang thing on and no effects for her? But my answer to my own question there was probably she's already evil enough doing bad things, so the 
Horcrux doesn't need to kind of feel the need to be evil because she's already evil enough, so there's no necessity for it to try to take over and blacken her soul since it's already black. I don't know. That's kind of my own answer to my own question there. The second one I have is kind of a plot hole, and I, I back it up with like the page numbers here. On page 336, it says, uh, when like they get into Bethilda Bagshot's house, it says, Come, called Bethilda from the next room. Hermione jumped and clutched Harry's arm. But then on page 347, uh, she the, 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 at the very bottom paragraph, Harry says, Lupin said there would be magic we never imagined. She didn't want to talk in front of you because it was parcel tongue. All parcel tongue. And I didn't realize, of course, but I could understand her. So she did actually talk in front of Hermione. It said, come, and that's why Hermione jumped and clutched Harry's arm. So if she said, come, and if it did speak in parcel tongue, wouldn't Hermione at that point be like, dude, it's hissing like a snake, Harry, don't go. Like, it just leaves it alone as if, like, you know, it, it made it seem like she jumped from the sound of Bathilda's voice saying, come, where Harry said everything she said was in parcel tongue. But it couldn't have been because Hermione would have recognized, hey, that's a motherfucking snake hissing. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? True. Yeah. Like so. that shit. <laughs> yeah. You're especially as smart as Hermione is. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So that's the only one I had for that part. So do you kind of agree yeah. with my heads out on that? Or do you think you got an answer for that or what? No, I think I think that's a good point because I feel like Ron wouldn't have noticed it because Ron's a dumbass half the time. <laughs> <laughs> like Hermione wouldn't notice that shit. Ex- yeah, like, yeah, you got a fucking snake saying "hasi heth." <laughs> yeah, Hermione's gonna notice that shit. <laughs> yeah, like For that's sure. a huge plot hole. That's a, that's a good one you picked up on because I didn't really pick up on that because I didn't read into it too much. But yeah, that's a very good point. Good call. Awesome, and that's all I had. Other than that, like it's like it's really good chapters, and there's a lot of action there too. So. I guess so. Yeah, just give us your interesting fact, and I'll give them mine, and then we'll get on out of their hair. Yeah, cool. Um, this one actually works out well because we were just talking about Umbridge and like how evil her damn soul is. So I talked about this before. Is like it kind of brings up the point, like you know, she had the cat Patronus that we it was mentioned in the chapter of where they go get the locket that you read, and. Um, you know, we've talked about this before and discussed it because they say the only way you can conjure a Patronus is to be pure of heart. But just piggybacking off of what you said with that plot hole, the explanation they have for this on Pottermore is she's so deep-rooted, um, she's so deeply rooted, unheartly, I guess I would say, evil that she still believes what she's doing is pure. So, like, for instance, like, for these, um, you know, mudbloods and to try to drive out all the half-bloods into purebloods, she truly believes that's right, so she's able to conjure a Patronus, whereas most evil wizards can't because only the pure of heart can. Um, But my interesting facts is just on her cat Patronus, so believe it or not, cat Patronuses are actually pretty common. There's just different types of cats. Like for instance, you know, Kingsley Shacklebolt has a lynx. So it doesn't mean you're always bad, but it does say cat Patronuses are the most common types of Patronuses. And it means either you're a curious or loving person. Um, in Umbridge's case, they say it's cause she's a curious person. 
which is very interesting because I would think more it's like maybe they're sly or cunning, which is like what the perception is of a weasel Patronus. But Arthur Weasley, it's actually been proved that that's for polite and friendly people. So it's very interesting that they gave her that. Like it makes sense because she always has been attached to those cat things. Um, but for that to be the answer there. But to answer your question about your blowel, I think you are entirely right. I think it's just she's such she's uh, such a deep-rooted bitch, <laughs> I think is what the answer is. Excuse my language there. There's really no, um, no other way around it than that word <laughs> because she truly believes what she's right she's doing is right even though it's clearly wrong. Um, and that was my interesting fact, and you got a pretty awesome one, so I'll go ahead and turn it over to you for your interesting fact, man. For sure. I will say that you did just teach me something there. I, maybe I just haven't researched it or anything, but from my understanding, like for Patronuses, if anyone's able to conjure Patronuses, they can come up with a genuinely happy thought that's strong enough. I didn't realize you had to be a pure of heart to conjure a Patronus. Uh, as yes. well so maybe i'll do some little digging into that on that end so because if that's true it's that like i just learned something new uh right here and now so that's good stuff mm-hmm. um for my interesting fact i did it on the essence of Dittany. i know chase had mentioned i had did that and i'm actually going to take a leaf out of chase's book i always like laugh at him when he talks about potions <laughs> and stuff and like how you can make it and stuff but i'm actually going to go ahead and, and do it myself but anyways the uh the essence of Dittany is a healing potion that heals wounds at a near instant rate when applied topically. When applied, green smoke billows upward as the potion causes the wound to heal at an increased rate and the skin to regrow over the wound. The wound will become as if it had been healed for several days and prevent scarring. A few drops alone is enough to heal large wounds. The ingredients in it are three ounces of blended dittany extract, a combined mix of white dittany and cretin dittany oils, copper, and four pickled shrake spines. The brewing instructions for the preparation are uh, Part 1, add copper to the mortar. Crush into a fine thin powder using a pestle. Add 6 inches of the ground powder to your cauldron. Add 4 pickled shrake spines to your cauldron. Stir gently 3 times clockwise till potion turns blue. Heat on a high temp for 20 seconds. Wave your wand. Leave to brew for 40 minutes uh, with a pewter cauldron. 35 minutes with a brass cauldron. And 30 minutes with a copper cauldron. And the potion will appear translucent orange when ready. Uh, part two, you have to add three ounces of blended dittany extract to your cauldron. The potion will steam yellow after the extract is added. Stir gently seven times anti-clockwise so the potion turns brown. Wave your wand and that completes the potion in its entirety. And if the potion is made successfully, the liquid will be brown in color. Uh, the dangers of this, the brew must be stirred slowly and gently or the shrake spines will become overexcited and overexcited shrake spines will jump out of the cauldron and hop around the table. Uh, and the, the quick history of this is due to the rare nature of dittany and the need for the blended extract, this potion is often hard to come by and is treated with the utmost care as to not waste it. The blended extract serves to make the potion much stronger than using dittany alone, as dittany heals minor shallow wounds, and the use of this potion is often found in the wizarding history by some of the most well-known wizards and witches, as well as many of the uh, unknown and lesser knowns. And there is nothing in this potion that will cause it to explode, create a toxic fume, or create a foul order, and or any other danger that are not listed on this page. So that's a little bit about the essence of Dittany that we hear about when Ron's arm gets splinched and Hermione pulls it out and heals it. So that's my interesting fact for this episode. Awesome, man, dude, good stuff. Yeah, that's a that's a 
pretty powerful potion. Um, right before we close out, I got a quick one. Malice in the chalice, baby. Still got it held over here. You threw the great debate. I'm going to throw the malice in the chalice card before we close. Um, just feeding on uh, where we were talking about the pure of heart um, with the Patronuses, because that was actually pretty astonishing to me, too, because I used to think that as well, that as far as uh, happiness was all that it took to conjure a Patronus. But I actually talked about this on the interesting facts. Uh, it's been a while now. It's been back maybe when we were on order i think yeah it was on order because we were talking about the da and patronuses so there's a original story that they have on pottermore you can look up and it's when the first patronus was ever conjured and it's by a boy named Ilias. uh Ilias, so what was happening was one of the first evil wizards of all time was raxidian uh some argue whether it was him or chrysdis that created the dementors most say it was a Christus because he's the one that created Azgvan. But Raxidian was tormenting this village and he was trying to force his hand in marriage on this princess Ileana. Well, what happened was uh, this small boy, Ilias, um, he really wanted to fight in this war because the villagers said, no, you're not going to take this princess and force the hand in marriage. Long story short was they were all being um, taken over by the Dementors he was controlling, which almost relates to how, you know, Umbridge was controlling Dementors, and he sent them on the village. Well, to defeat the uh, Dementors, basically everyone was getting their soul sucked out, and he was taking Ileana's hand in marriage. Uh, Ilias conjured a mouse Patronus, and he didn't like that. So the first time a wizard that's not pure of heart has ever conjured a Patronus occurred and he tried to conjure the Patronus himself against Ilias and this is all on Pottermore and what happened was Patronus maggots shot out at the end of his wand and it's described as the spell ate him whole <laughs> so uh, that's pretty interesting and you can look that up on Pottermore I talked about it on the interesting facts like a few months ago how I remember all that I think I just got thought it was a cool story about like maggots i guess <laughs> kind of like zelda vibe is how i remember that but that just fed off the pure of heart so that was my malice in the chalice card throw that out the end yes guys these do still exist <laughs> they do i know it's been a lot of story time with chasing dosh josh but those cards do still exist to prove that so off to the shadow realm but yeah you want to close this out man dude sounds like a plan so before we close out, like every single time around here, we just got to take the time to thank the audience members, both uh, old and new. Uh, if you are new, you can follow us on a multitude of platforms. So if uh, you have Instagram, you can follow us at Official Ridiculous Patronus on Instagram. If you got Facebook, you can follow our fan page at Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy. When it comes to listening to the podcast, we're on any platform that you have available to you. If you're an Android user, we're on Google Play. If you're an iPhone user, we're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify. We're on iHeartRadio, we're on Podbean, we're on YouTube if you want to take a look at us and see how we look in real life as well, uh, and then how we do <laughs> our visuals that we always talk about at the beginning of all of our episodes. So uh, those are the ways that you can find us. So click like, subscribe, leave comments, reviews. We like the interaction with the people who listen to our show, and we're looking forward to continuously expanding as we get closer and closer to the end of our very first season. So 
Uh, you know, with that being said, Chase, is there anything that you wanted to add to that before we go ahead and sign off uh, completely today? Um, no, man. Uh, once again, guys, thanks for just always following us and being on this ride here. You know, I put out a, a promo that said, you know, it all opens at the close. And that's what we're about to do. And uh, we are on that final peak of the mountain. We're about to get to the top. Um, once again, just a quick shout out to Podbean. Every week they're shouting us out. So that means a lot. Been on there since October. Uh, you guys are awesome. Um, our true fans, you know, y'all followed us from the beginning. Just like you said, all the reviews and everything. It means the world to us. Um, finally, on getting us on TikTok, we're on uh, Ridiculous Patronus on TikTok. I started trying to put some of our sets on there. I'm Chase Brown 013, but it's just Chase Factor Fantasy. You can look that up. We'll try to get Josh on there. There's only three videos, but I was surprised. We crushed it on there with like 796 views in the first day of just some books. So we're going to start doing some more stuff on there. It means a lot. You know, y'all just always following us with everything we do, not just even Harry Potter. So, and uh, that's going to be awesome with season two as we're kind of branching out, doing some other things. But yeah, uh, guys, uh, thanks so much for all you do for us. And I'm going to let Jay Nelly himself uh, go sign us off today. Awesome. So, uh, you know, as we mentioned before a couple times with Harry Potter and Deathly Hallows, there's going to be 10 episodes that talk about the contents of the book. And obviously, two of those 10 are going to be differences between the film and the movie part one and film and the movie part two. So this one here has been part three. Uh, next week, we'll get part four and so on and so forth until we close out and, uh, and finish this amazing series and then actually finish the first season of Chasing Josh Factor Fantasy. But you still got us for a little more time here for season one. But that's all you get for here right now today because you know this has been another ridiculous production. Chase and Josh. Factor Fantasy. Signing off. Signing off. <laughs>